Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Warriors. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best damn Nintendo podcast on the internet. This is going to be the retro show for the month of January 2024. And what we do on the retro show is we time travel, we rewind time, we go back 21 years previous. So we're going to talk about everything happening in the month of January 2003. And you guys, what a time to be alive. There it is. We were it certainly lo- was a, a brand new year. It was brand a, new year to be a alive. brand new year, year three of the millennium. As, uh, as we're entering it. Uh, and there, we've got a, a bunch of things to talk about on this month, uh, including a bunch of uh, GameCube games uh, and one Game Boy Advance game. Uh, then uh, a, f- a few albums. I listened to a few albums and then a bunch nice. of movies as well. So let's get into the uh, historical context that we want to give. Any goings on? I think there is a lot. There is a lot to kind of set the table for us getting into a new Let's year. do it. So if that's okay with you guys, um, I think we sort of talked about this a little bit when we were doing our our December t- 2002 episode, but it's worth noting that uh, this year is going to be, you know, we cover media pretty much thoroughly, like on a show, we talk about movies and music and games and stuff like that. It's worth noting that basically all media consumption is going to be down about 20% this year, like everything. Movie theaters are going to see about a 20% drop. Games will see about a 20% drop. Music sales will drop. The only thing that's going to increase, and it's going to increase by 50%, is DVD sales. Oh, interesting. This is, yeah, I I think this is the era of the home theater. Mm. So we're really starting to see that transition where people are getting high-def stuff in their home, so they're not going to the movies anymore. They're opting for purchasing on DVDs, which is, by the way, a, a fantastic medium. I know it's not anything of what it used to be. Probably getting a lot more affordable now, those DVDs. DVD players. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think peak DVD consumption was like 2007 or 2008. Um, and so it's going to go up pretty much every year for the next five years. Um, it's going to be a huge part of just media sales going forward in terms of physical media. But, you know, I just thought that was interesting to know. And we also talked about this a little bit. Um, I actually think this is kind of the year of Nintendo. Like Nintendo has been so browbeaten the past few years by PlayStation's success I think this is actually a bigger year for them than for for PlayStation. Maybe not in terms of total sales, but you're going to get four of the best-selling, four of the top ten GameCube games all uh, in terms of top sales came out this year in 2003. Um, The best-selling game will be on a Nintendo console. Oh, very good uh, of of the year. So um, I think there's there's a lot of good stuff to look forward to for Nintendo fans for, sure. for 2003. For sure, yeah. It'll be a good year to talk about all the games coming out in both the, the GameCube and the GBA. Uh, I think it also is, is worth noting that, like, and I think you kind of touched on this on a previous show, like, it might be the peak year for the GameCube after this. Um, it's it's not going to go so great for the little system. Um no game that's released after 2003 will end up in the top 10 bestsellers. But yep. that, that, that doesn't mean there won't be anything noteworthy talking about. There are, of the 35 GameCube games that broke a million sales, 12 of them are going to be released in 2004 or later. So there's still some some big games, uh, as well as some smaller mm-hmm. software that don't crack a million that are still well worth talking about. So we'll, we still have a good library to look forward to. Uh, meanwhile, on the GBA, we're going to see a really nice hardware revision um, I think in March in North America of this year, 
And over the lifetime of the, the GBA, it's going to quadruple the sales of the GameCube. And the Game Boy Advance SP is going to double just by itself uh, total GameCube sales worldwide. So it's going to two two good systems with still good libraries of games to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Any other so, yeah. historical things that... Just actually a couple of things. Uh, yeah, so this is an out. This is when the outbreak of SARS happened. Oh, okay. um, oh, yeah, yeah. January the first cases of SARS are reported in China. Um, you know, of course, what we now know as you know COVID nineteen um, is essentially SARS COVID two. Um, this first version of it that came out in two thousand three was not nearly as bad. Didn't have anywhere near the death toll it does kind of eerily mirror what we know about the 2019 covid though um you know it's again it comes out of china it's believed it hit 30 different countries it's believed the death toll is around 800 but that's probably grossly underreported in china i'm sure they covered up it's for all we know i I don't want to speculate but i it's, it's certainly not 770 deaths it's way more than that um and yeah you know it's it's a it's a respiratory disease so that's kind of kind of creepy that it's out there. And yeah, and of course, the Chinese government worked to cover it up and lessen its impact. I think the American death toll was somewhere in the teens. It was not very big for America. There was very few casualties. And then this is one that maybe it goes to uh, compound or, or exasperate. Uh, so the dismissiveness around COVID-19 that you still see uh, in, in thir- certain segments of, of media and American society, but uh, there, this SARS outbreak or the danger of SARS was very much sensationalized at the time. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of media around, like, oh, this thing, it, it's going to happen. There's this disease that's coming to get you. And of course, they're like not nearly as transmissible as COVID 19, not nearly as deadly as COVID 19, but you know. Um, mm. it, it probably didn't help people take these sorts of things seriously when it gets yeah. the sort of media coverage that it does. Yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, and again, it was all contained within a year. They were able to stamp, the, you know, get get it out of the system of just the general populace by, I think, October. That was when the last reported case was. So it had a very short shelf life and didn't have that big of a death toll. So we kind of just overlooked it. And like you're saying, in retrospect, clearly underplayed it because it could have been a lot worse as we've seen how worse it can be. Yeah, it, it was um, to the point where yeah. uh, it got parodied on South Park in a really great episode, by the way, where yeah. there, there's like a role reversal where some land speculators who are Native American were trying to take over South Park and giving them diseased blankets with SARS. <laughs> and if, like nice, if, if people think gosh. they got SARS, like, oh, there's only a 99% chance that I'll live through this. So, you know, it was, it was <clears throat> a, a punchline in that, <clears throat> you know, that parody show. Yeah. Um, so you'll like this one, John, another bit of news. Um, uh, by the by, the U.S. courts, the X-Men are legally not human. Oh, fascinating. Um, there is a court case. This is an interesting court case that occurred. But apparently in, in 2003, um, the United States Court of International Trade had to settle a dispute between Toy Biz, the manufacturer of X-Men characters, and the manufacturers overseas where there is apparently a tariff that's paid if you are manufacturing dolls 
implying human dolls. Uh, Toy Biz went to court to argue that the X-Men are not human and therefore not not <laughs> dolls and are not subject to this tax. Oh, that's wow. funny. And they won wow. the case. I wonder, like, <laughs> how much they saved in tax, like, costs. I'll tell you. The tax went from 12% to 6.8%. Okay, oh, so they cut it in <laughs> half. Okay. Just that's, about, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's wild. More news. I'm good that <laughs> there's, 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 there's legal precedent in regard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. It, what, what an arbitrary thing. What an insane thing for them to come up with. I was, I was like, all right, sure. Uh, January 7th, Apple unveils the web browser Safari. You know, Safari, if you anyone uses iPhones out there, that's your default browser. So still kicking, still running. Internet Explorer is dead. Internet Explorer but, is dead. You know and, what? And you know, Safari, people still use it to install Firefox. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I run, I have uh, Firefox. Mm. And I know some people like Chrome. That's all and right. And Edge now exists too. You have your... your Pick of the litter in terms of yeah. browsers that you want to Edge is now, use. Yeah, Edge is now the default yeah. Microsoft Windows browser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Safari was um, a much more efficient web browser. Um, it ran JavaScript a lot more fluidly and a lot faster, so that was its claim to fame. Uh, moving on, Super Bowl 37 occurred. Uh, this was the Tampa Bay Bucks versus the Oakland Raiders. The Bucks won 48-21. Uh, to 21. Uh, Shania Twain was the halftime show. Uh, she had guests, no doubt, in Sting there, of course, because none of those three artists make sense together. But <laughs> you know, they were they were all there. Um, this was not like Brad Johnson was the quarterback for Tampa, and he had a very unimpressive stat line of uh, 18 for 34 passing, 215 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. Uh, Rich Gannon, the quarterback for Oakland, threw five picks, oh, man. five interceptions. Um, Tampa's defense was one of the best that's ever been fielded. It had Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, Ronnie Barber, John Lynch. The MVP of the Super Bowl would be a safety who had two of those five interceptions, mm. a, a guy named Dexter Jackson. So that happened. Good for good for Tampa. Um, it would be a, a drought for them in terms of Super Bowls because they wouldn't win one for another, what is this, 19 years? They won one recently? So, yeah, the two years ago, they won with Tom Brady. Okay, oh, that's right. Yeah, so again, kind of a weird year, kind of a, a, a kind of a, not a one and done. He played there for I think two years, hmm. but yeah, that was kind of that. Um, all right, and and I'm almost done, guys. Get this. Uh, so uh, I mentioned earlier, DVD sales up were up. TV was TV TV viewership was also up big. I'm going to tell you the TV shows that premiered in January. We're going to get to the end of the list. We're going to be floored. And I'm going to tell you this isn't even the biggest month for TV. So, TV shows that had their premiere in January 2003, The Chappelle Show, hmm. uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, which is still on and has had 3,500 episodes, um, Mythbusters, 17 seasons, 300 episodes, Penn and Teller's Bullshit, 8 seasons, 89 episodes, um, the reality show Joe Millionaire, uh, where it turns out the, the guy is not, in fact, a millionaire. I think we might have alluded to that show on, on a previous episode yeah like that was the the punchline the the rug from underneath like hey do you still love this schmuck now that he doesn't have a million dollars yeah um the bachelorette which has had 20 seasons and this is apparently what this season the couple that actually gets paired up is still married this is one mm. of the very few success stories and disney channel has that's so raven four seasons on 100 episodes that is like 
tons of current relevant shows and just tons of classic TV came out. Yeah. So there you go. That, that's it. That's my okay. slice of life. That's everything that happened in January 2003. I do have a couple other things that happened in January 2003. Uh, the Space oh, Shuttle Columbia had their final mission. So okay. yeah, there, there was a time where we were a, a spacefaring nation. We had our own space vehicles. We don't anymore. Now we hitchhike. Um, Is there another event that happens to that in February? I think. I think we might be talking about the Columbia again soon. I don't remember. Maybe? I don't want to bury the lead. I believe the Columbia... Um, exploded on re-entry, didn't it? Oh, oh, yeah, but uh, I, I think there was like no wait. Was there people on board? Are you th- yeah, I thought so. I thought did it happen to the Columbia too? I thought that was just the Challenger. No, no, that was the Columbia as well. I think I think the Columbia. I mean, it went up into space successfully, yeah, and did its thing. But on re-entry. Oh man! It like had had. I, I, there's like something that happened to it. Well, again, that's probably we're not talking about it now because that's an event that happens in February. Gotcha. Uh, and this was also. Uh, well, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, this was also the month where Pete Townsend was arrested in the UK for allegedly having indecent images of children. He was later cleared of those charges. Yes, as I understand, he himself was like as a child he was sexually abused. And I think he was trying to prove a point that the internet is unregulated and that it's easy to access that content. So I think, and he uh, he had alerted officials beforehand he was doing this too. Um, like, so he had already basically said like, hey guys, I'm making this thing about my life and about what happened to me when I was a kid. I'm going to go online and prove to you that you can get this stuff. And they're like, hey, you found this stuff. Well, you're... You're arrested. Right. So like, kind of like a weird inverse way of proving his point. Like, yes, you can go and find it, but then you're just going to get caught. Right, right. Um, well, and I think he made a big deal. He, he kind of announced that he was doing it and mm. then did it. So, yeah, and that, that's why I think, like, as I understand, that's he's sort of innocent of, of what happened. He's not, like, a pedophile. Right. He, he wasn't, like, he doing anything. He wasn't doing something predatory. Yeah. I think that he was just in the same way that he was doing, like, an expose on it but again i don't know all of the details it's a it's a very weird thing i know he got dragged for years and years because he did this so it's a very strange um, thing to do like i'm going to prove that it's possible to rob a bank so here i go to rob this bank yeah yeah um and then again it's it's like entrapment you know it's like when the if the, the police try to like force you into committing a crime it's like no it's like no i'm only selling crack cocaine because i'm trying to prove i can sell crack cocaine. <laughs> look how easy it is to sell crack <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah anyway all right well we've been uh, setting up the time frame for a while here well, let's just move into the game yeah, we i think Sure, sure. Let's do it. Okay, so mm-hmm. I ha- let's start with the GameCube. I have several GameCube games, three GameCube games, really, to get through here. We got a couple of ports. Actually, I take that back. We got three ports. Three ports to talk about. First one is Resident Evil 2 for the GameCube. Oops. Released January 14th, 2003. This is, of course, a port of the uh, PS1 game. They had like a sort of uh, updated version of the PS1 game. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it released on the PS1, but this is a version that supported things like Rumble and Analog Controls. That's the version that they released on the GameCube. I think the the biggest thing for me about Resident Evil 2 is that it's a hugely replayable game. There's you get tons of bang for your buck with this. There's 
two different scenarios for each of the two characters. Uh, there's like ranked modes, like unlockable modes. There's so much you can do with this, this all-time classic. It's really great to have this one on the system. It's a shame it didn't get the big like visual update that they did with Resident Evil 1, but like this is like an all-time classic. It took everything that the first Resident Evil did and really refined it to a point where like this is like the the, the gold standard for a like survival horror type of game. And Ryan, you've played a lot of Resident Evil 2. Oh, yep. Yeah. Um I would agree with everything you just said. This makes this makes the short list of my all-time favorite games. Um, it's an absolute classic. I played it in a lot of different mediums too. I mean, I played it on the computer. I played it. Um, I, I played it on the PlayStation, as I recall. Um, so I, I absolutely do do love this game. Um, it's incredible mood, great great suspenseful nature to it. The um, you know, again, establishing the, the... I mean, obviously the original Resident Evil establishes the idea of, like, survival horror in gaming, but Resident Evil 2 really um, delivers everything that was great about that kind of gameplay and mood and environment, and then just really amps everything up. Delightful game. In also worth noting, it's on the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go, go, go. Oh, just going to finish that off by saying it's, it's also on the N64, yep. right? It's not like a... a, a a remake or anything. Yeah, it was... Uh, it did come out on that console. It was a late N64 game. We talked about it when we talked about that library. It's a really admirable port, but they had to make a lot of compromises, like taking out a lot of the cut scenes and some of like, the, the audio work, but they were able to get like the game onto an N64 cart, which is impressive. Mm-hmm. Now, now this one follows... Who are the characters in this one that you're following? It's Leon and Claire. Hmm. And I guess Ada Wong and Sherry Birkin yeah. would be their their little tag alongs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, um, so yeah, and and there you, you kind of pick up a lane, um, and then at the halfway point, I believe you can switch and play the other character. So whichever character you take has a completely different like path through it, and their stories link up at the end. They're not kind of side by side going through the whole game. So yeah. you get to see a different perspective of the man, uh, not the mansion this time. It's um, it's the police facility and the underground stuff. So um, it's pretty cool. It's, it, that's again, like John was saying, that's why it's so great for multiple playthroughs um, because you know every time you do it, it'll be a little different. Yeah, and it, it gives you a whole lot of different uh, things like unlockable weapons and um, costumes, things that they would charge you for now, but back then it was free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For for completing the different scenarios with like higher ranks, so tons of reasons to go through the game. Oh, like a lot of like little Easter eggs. Like if you were to make it through the opening of the game, like the little uh, oh, dash you got to do through Raccoon City uh, within a certain amount of time without killing any zombies. Down in like this little uh, alleyway, you'll see Brad Vickers, who's become a zombie. Yep. Yeah, he'll be in that little like alleyway beneath the building. It's very funny. Yeah, it's very very cool. Uh, this is a pretty rare print. You can get it for ninety bucks GameCube for the disc only. Uh, it was pretty un- it was pretty uncommon back in the day too. I randomly found a copy of this and Resident Evil Three Nemesis at my local GameStop back in the day. I wasn't even looking for it at the time, but uh, even uh, it was like late 2003 2004 i knew that these were pretty rare prints so i go went ahead and grabbed them as soon as i saw them uh there's a ton of other ways to play this game it's definitely worth a play but you know 90 bucks for a gamecube desk you know probably not worth that price didn't they just release this on the switch like the whole 
Well, not just, but no. I mean, it's on the Switch. No, no, not this version of Resident Evil Two. You can play the remake oh. of Resident Evil Two through the cloud. Oh, okay. You're talking about the yeah, okay. But yeah, but only Got the it. only classic Resident Evil games. Well, there's a bunch of classic Resident Evil games on Switch, but you can play Zero, the remake of One, um, Four, Five. I don't think Six. I think Four and Five are the only other ones. Maybe Six. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, and then, like, the Revelations games. But uh, Resident Evil 2, 3, and Code Veronica are not available on Switch, unfortunately. I only ever played 4. It's good. It's a good one. Um, I would like to put this game right around 20, somewhere in that range. Um, I'm surprised you won't play it that low. Well, I mean, that high. It, well, you know, it is a really solid game, but it is a port of a PS1 game. So I don't think wow. it, like, goes into the top ten. Uh, what do you guys think of, like, right around Gauntlet Dark Legacy? Do you think, like, above or below? Mm, that's tough to say. Like, Resident Evil 2, it feels weird putting it there because it is such a great game. But for, a, a like, a GameCube owner, like, should you be getting Resident Evil 2? Probably not. I think it's fine. I think it's fine to put it beneath that, but just sort of with a caveat that like it's an about, all-time great like, game sitting at 20. <laughs> I mean, the, the, what if we don't put it on the list? I mean, it's not technically a GameCube game. Like, does it even go on the list then? The I think way it goes you guys on the list. Saying it? That's a good point. I think we put some other ports on there, but, uh, you know, it, it actually about, could just um, be left off. Uh, Monkey Ball. Monkey Ball 1 and 2. Above or below? I mean, yes, this game's better than Monkey Ball. Oh, God. I would, I, yeah. I mean, like, I Mario Party, I Mario Party 4? I mean, come on. <laughs> okay, so that. we're going to yeah, put it right fully. at 19. And and to, okay. to expedite this process, um, I wouldn't rank uh, Resident Evil 3 Nemesis this high, but maybe we just group them together. They're, they're, they're... That's, That's fine. Yeah, just, I think we talked about doing that with together, the Mario Party. Keep them pals. So let's move mm-hmm. right over into Resident Evil 3 Nemesis uh, for the GameCube. Oddly enough, came out like the following day, not at the same time. Um, but uh, both of these, I didn't mention before, were of course published and developed by Capcom. Um, I, I've mentioned this before on this podcast. I'm going to take another moment to mention that Nemesis was not actually supposed to be Resident Evil 3. So both Nemesis and Code Veronica were in development at Capcom, as was another Resident Evil game that was supposed to be Resident Evil 3. I'm not exactly sure what became of that game or if they ever actually showed it, but Capcom decided to scrap that game. They were developing it for the PS1. They decided to scrap that game because it was not going to come out before the PS2 was going to launch. So they decided, if we can't get this out for you know, current hardware, let's just cut it and start over. So um, there, there was... Uh, there, there was some like uh, scuttlebutt, I suppose, about why Nemesis was then named 3 as opposed to Code Veronica, and it had something to do with Sony having a deal with Capcom that numbered Resident Evil games had to be on PlayStation systems, at least uh, at that time, because as we know, Resident Evil 4 will end up on the GameCube first. So, well, and Code Veronica came out on... Dreamcast, right? Code Veronica came out on Dreamcast, which is why, because Code Veronica was out on Dreamcast first, so because of their deal with Sony, Capcom had to name Nemesis Resident Evil 3. Otherwise, it makes a little bit more sense to call Mm. Code Veronica Resident Evil 3, because it's a a game that 
is more of a faithful follow-up to Resident Evil 2. Resident Evil 3 is an interesting game, but it breaks a lot from the formula of Resident Evil 2. Specifically, you like you're not and and Resident Evil 1, specifically you're not in a enclosed environment. Uh you are like moving throughout Raccoon City, which you know is still you know, you still like have rooms and corridors that connect to other ones, so it's really more open and aesthetic only. But it's not quite the same tangled web. Like once you like work your way through an area, you're not going to be doing a whole lot of backtracking in Nemesis. Um, it's also not as uh, ambitious or as intricate with the item puzzles. There's a lot of items that are going to be a one-time use and then you're done with them. You're not going to be like collecting keys and then backtracking, going around, finding what doors you're going to open with them. It's very much like a, a, a progression, constantly keep on moving forward. Um, but they do some interesting things with Nemesis. There's a ammo crafting system in there where you know, mixing different uh, powders together will get you different ammo. You see that sort of thing return in games like the Resident Evil 2 and 3 remakes. There's also the, like, Nemesis system where it, it, like, keep you, like, on the edge. Like, playing through the game a second time is going to be different from other playthroughs because Nemesis is going to appear in different places, context-sensitive, where Nemesis is going to appear. So it, it gives you this this tension makes it kind of shitty if you're just trying to like speed run or do like a most efficient possible run through because there are ways to manipulate where nemesis is going to come in but there's also some that are just like random number generator maybe he'll show up maybe he won't so it's not like this refined maze that you're working through with like all these different scenarios to uh master an experience so i don't think it's as replayable as resident evil 2 but you do get uh, some nice jump scares and you get to see like the fate of raccoon city which has always been like a like a backdrop to what's actually happening in these games to this point ryan did you play much mm -hmm. of nemesis not nearly as much as two but yeah i played through nemesis a few times um and, and yeah i liked it i think it, it really does it, it feels like more like resident evil 2.5 mm -hmm. um i mean i think they came up with a really cool character in nemesis and it's fun to uh stomp around as jill valentine with her unusual outfit um <laughs> her, her but, wildly inefficient survival gear. yeah exactly uh -huh. with her tactical cardigan tied around her waist yeah. <laughs> um but yeah you know it's it's uh it's fine like it doesn't really introduce any major characters that stick around like wait is there's that char character carlos mm -hmm. i think he's like a uh, like a militia guy or something. So he's, um, I don't. Yeah, yeah, he's like yeah. umbrella militia security. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he and yeah, like I, I don't know. Re Resident Evil Two is where all of, of the the charm for it is, and considering how short the time is between this game coming out and Code Veronica, which is vastly superior and changes things a lot. Um, you know, I think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. So this is another pricey one. You're looking at like 110 bucks for disc only. That's that's tough. That's tough. That's not yeah, uh, yeah. What, what you want to be paying for something like this. But let's move over to the last GameCube game that I have. This one is Skies of Arcadia Legends. It came out January 25th, 2003. This is a port of a Dreamcast game. I think we might have mentioned it really briefly when we talked about Dreamcast game back when the Dreamcast was a, a system that was alive. 
Uh, this one was developed by a studio called Overworks and published by Sega. And I, I think this might be the first like actual RPG that we're talking about on GameCube. Uh, it was originally... That's kind of sad to think. Right, where we're two yeah. plus years into the lifespan of the system. Um, this one, the, the, this port, Skies of Arcadia Legends, was originally planned for releasing on PS2 as well as GameCube. But the PS2 version got scrapped in order to make the best possible GameCube version, which is not something that we're going to hear a whole lot over the lifespan of the GameCube. Um, <laughs> it'll turn out that a lot of GameCube games will end up getting ported to PS2 in order to, you know, try to sell more than a few hundred thousand copies. So, uh, it is a fantasy-based, sort of like Sky Pirate RPG. You have your little motley crew, and you go sailing through the skies and taking on dungeons and stuff. There's turn-taking fights, random battles. There's sky battles where, you know, your ship fights against other ships. Dungeons, uh, towns where you do things like buy equipment and, and gear and stuff. Um, so, a pretty much uh, what you would expect out of a JRPG at the time. I think the really special thing about Skies of Arcadia is all of these like optional recruitable characters. You can go around and uh, try to bring on these different characters to join your pirate crew, and they'll have like different types of classes with fun designs and skills. The GameCube version in particular has better character models, frame rate, and load times than the Dreamcast version. Yeah, it's it's Looks not bad. Nice. It's not bad at all. The Dreamcast version, uh, funnily enough, because the Dreamcast uh, had a, uh, a a built-in modem, it could just natively connect to the internet. The Dreamcast version actually had DLC as it existed at the time, um, whereas the the GameCube version had all of that extra content included on the disc. So this is actually a super rare print now. You're looking at like 300 bucks for a copy of this game. But oh, uh, a really a highly oh, wow. regarded RPG, especially on the Dreamcast, the GameCube version, still reviewed really well, but did not sell particularly well at all. I actually had a copy of this game. <laughs> had? Yeah, I traded it in at the time. Oh. Well, at the time... Um, I was uh, I was very into uh, Final Fantasy IX, Final Fantasy X, and if games didn't play like those RPGs, weren't playing like Final Fantasy X, I was like, no, I don't want this, and I'll trade it in. Um, and yeah, I, I had it in the box with the instruction manual, and now someone else owns it because I gave Wicky. it. That's a shame. Yeah, real. Un- this is probably one of like the best reviewed games of the year already. Like these reviews are are stunning like this is universal acclaim some of the bigger ones were giving it nine and a half mm-hmm. out of ten like yeah this game was very well liked I, I honestly really had not heard of this yeah it's a pretty niche uh I, I, I guess franchise is not really a franchise though sega only ever made the one of them but it's one of these games that it like that's in sega's stable of games where people are always asking for a re-release and by people i mean like a few nerds on the internet who are really into RPGs. And it would be really cool to see this game get a re-release. They do make references to this game. Like, there are characters that have the same names as these characters and similar designs as these characters in some other niche Sega franchises like Valkyria Chronicles. But we should rank this game. And I kind of want to put this game 
not in the top ten, but pretty close. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. I like um, it more than Fantasy Star. Um, I, I want to put it above Jedi Outcast. Any objections? I'm fine with that. That's what I was thinking. I, I was definitely thinking about Blood Rain. What do you think about that? I, I think that's fine, yes. What, what about uh, Tony Hawk? Do, do you think we can put it above Tony Hawk? I mean, it's three and four. I mean, the better ones were one and two. <laughs> four reviewed surprisingly well. Like that was I something... never played four, so I am talking out my butt there a little bit. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised at how much people revere four and say that it's one of the better installments. Um, it seems like fans of the series really like that one a lot. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this this seems like it's kind of uh, worthy of getting a pretty high placement, yeah, honestly. I'm, and like you said, there's not a lot of RPGs. I'm fine putting this right behind Luigi's Mansion. You think it's? Uh, you think Luigi's Mansion goes higher? I mean, Luigi's Man. I like Luigi's Mansion. Luigi's Mansion no, is a short no, game. Personally, if both games were put in front of me, I'm playing Skies. I mean, that's just how it is. Decided. I mean, that's it. Decided. <laughs> Number eleven. <laughs> Playing, but I'm, it's still below Blood Rain, right? It goes Blood Rain, Skies, <laughs> and then Luigi's Mansion, right? I do have it below Pikmin, and maybe we readjust that, but I do really like Pikmin. And this, Blood Rain's a fantastic movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it. That's all I got for GameCube. Brian, you got any GameCube games? There is one game that came out called Black and Bruised. I don't know this one. It is a... Apparently a bad boxing game uh, loaded with a bunch of like really bad stereotypes. Um, it did not get good reviews. Here's the thing, though. The game looks great because it used that kind of cell-shaded art stylized thing. So it looks really good side-by-side side with a lot of other stuff that would have been coming out on a GameCube or a PlayStation 2. Um, but I think the game just kind of just, just not not good. And again, it just like uh, GameCube, like, don't you have a boxing thing already? Right. Maybe in your stable, you have a character known for boxing and you could make a game about that. Yeah, I wonder who developed this one. Um, but anyway, like, I see what you're saying, like, even like the main character, I think it's Connor McGregor is the name of this character. Who not that like an actual UFC fighter? Anyway. That is, that is a UFC fighter. He even like looks a little bit like Little Mac, so I think mm-hmm. like whoever developed this was trying to evoke Punch Out, and obviously, like, especially with like the uh, the sort of stereotypical um, racially profiled characters in this game. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think it's uh, aping Punch Out pretty hard here. Yeah, nobody was like this is the worst game ever, but it certainly got bad reviews. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, where do you want to go next? You want to go to some other console games, or you want to hit the GBA real quick? Oh, uh, I don't have anything for the GBA, so yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's talk about that. I just have that. one game for the GBA. It's Crash Bandicoot Entranced, and I feel like we just talked about a Crash Bandicoot okay. game, but it actually came back, it came out back in February two thousand two, so it's been almost a year. And this is uh, that one was developed by Vicarious Visions. This one is also vi- developed by Vicarious Visions. It's a 2D side-scrolling platformer. It's a Crash Bandicoot game who gives a rat's ass. But it's the only game yeah. that came out for the... I'm, I'm watching a video of it right now, and this looks really, really bad. Yeah. And there's a bunch of like different things. Like he's uh, 
um, being pulled by on the water by something, and he's just moving between buoys. It looked really bad, and then he's got like this weird propeller thing, and he's flying around. This game looks terrible. This this ugh, this looks painful. Yeah, do not get a used cart for twenty bucks. No. Let's move to some other stuff. Don't get a used cart for free. Just, <laughs> just be like, what, what did I do to you? And walk away from that. Get, get a, take the used cart and then smash it with a mallet. Okay, that's okay. That's fair. That's a good idea. This looks really bad. Um, Should we move on to some other systems? Yeah, let's do it. I got... No, no, um, no. I got, don't, I got, don't. We don't. Let's not. <laughs> we're, we're done here. So I, <laughs> if we're gonna go out on a high note with yeah. Crash Bandicoot, I, I got a, we're gonna wrap it up. I got a couple of games that came out on the the Pikachu, and one game for the Jigglypuff. <laughs> if that sounds weird to anyone, me and Wes used to censor ourselves when we were talking about other systems. We would call PlayStation <laughs> systems the Pikachu and Xbox systems the the Jigglypuff. Oh man, those were the days. We gotta bring that back. It just—that's just how it is now. What did you guys call the PC? Or were we just like, oh yeah, it's the PC. It's old, like twenty copies. You know, I don't think we we talked much about PC games. I mean, unless it's like Met Commander, we don't—we're really kind of out of our element uh, on the PC. I—I I think we just called that the Porygon. Oh uh, yeah, the Porygon. <laughs> oh, I like that. Uh, so I have I have two PS2s, two Pikachu's, right, and I have two Jigglypuffs. <laughs> One. Star you? What was the Porygon? Other one? <laughs> Porygon. And what was the third one? Wait, well, there's there's three other platforms. Well, if we're gonna call one the Porygon, yeah, PlayStation, Xbox, and PC, and PC, and PC, PC's Porygon. Yeah, yeah, PC, yeah, PC okay. would be Porygon. Xbox is Jigglypuff. PS2 is oh. Pikachu. I got, I got three. Okay, I got two, two let's Pikachus. Start, I got let's two start Pikachus. Pikachus. Do we need to write this down, Ryan? <laughs> I, I'm gonna put it in my notes it, it, so I remember this it, next. It, time. It's a difficult code. <laughs> <laughs> How have we talked about this like once a month, every month for the past like five years, and you never told me? <laughs> I forgot about the code. Oh. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, uh, first did. game, <laughs> the first game uh, I have is Devil May Cry mm-hmm. Two for PS2. Um, you know, this sold, it says they sold three million copies, but they missed expectations. I guess Capcom thought this would be a bigger game, probably because the first one was so well-received. Uh, I haven't played this, so I can't really comment on it, but it got very bad reviews. Yeah, People did not like this This one, one was like the, the worst rated of all the Devil May Cries, and um, it really was Devil May Cry 3 that brought the franchise back, because um, that one was fantastic. Yeah, Devil May Cry but... 3 is an all-time classic action game. Yeah, that one's really good but devil may cry 2 yeah, like uh, it's, it's the the capcom game they followed up uh, the first devil may cry which i think was only out like a year year and a half previous and the I, i've only played a little bit of devil may cry 2 but the, just like the general vibe was very like edge lordy even more so like devil may cry 1 devil may cry 3 very tongue-in-cheek um but devil may cry 2 very self-serious and the combat in it did not feel nearly as uh, fluid or connected as it did in, especially Devil May Cry 3. Devil May Cry 3 is leaps and bounds, like more of a, a combo-based, uh, a really frenetic action game. Um, but yeah, I also do not like Devil May Cry 2. I have nothing else to say about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other game to mention is uh, The Getaway. Came out on the PS2. Um, this one is heavily inspired by the formula established by uh, Grand Theft Auto. 
Um, but it's more from a British perspective. I guess if you could substitute Scarface for like Snatch or something, you'd probably get a little closer to what this game was about. Um, it sold well. I mean, it sold 4 million oh, copies geez. for essentially just, yeah, yeah, for essentially kind of just cashing in on the craze at the time of a gangster open world sandbox kind of thing. Um, it had, it was noted for having better graphics, essentially. Like, th things were, the it was sort of smaller but bigger at the same time. Like, the environments were smaller, but everything felt bigger and more detailed if you look at them side by side with what GTA was doing at the time. Um, they also opted for essentially having um, and not really having a, a HUD, like a heads-up display. You didn't have a health bar. You know, you didn't have, like, a... a a pistol visible with ammo and stuff in it. Um, so it had a more immersive feel to it. Um, it's it's weird. This is a very divisive game because there's a lot of people that gave this game glowing reviews and a lot of people that gave this game very bad reviews. Um, so it's very hard to tell. If you average them out, sure, it's like a probably a 65 out of 100, but that's with a bunch of 90s and a bunch of 30s. Hmm. You know, um, it's a very divisive game. And it seems like, from what I've seen, and I don't want to speak out of turn here, but it seems like in retrospect, people do consider this game to be underappreciated. Um, that it's it's a Pepsi to Coca-Cola, and not like some off-brand knockoff. That it's actually a pretty solid game. So just putting that one out there. Again, 4 million sales is good. Really good. Yeah, for, for sure. A somewhat understated classic. Yeah, yeah. I have a couple of Pikachu games. Nothing really to say about them. Just going to acknowledge that they existed. Dynasty Warriors as a series was still going. Right? Uh, Dynasty Warriors 3 was out this month, as well as The Sims. The Sims got a console port to the Pikachu, which was a, a hugely impactful game with the sort of like broader audience of video games when mm -hmm. it was released on PC. Well, it's funny you mention that, because uh, Sim, Sim City 4 came out for the PC. That was my PC game I was going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, for the Porygon. Uh, Porygon. So it sold 1 million copies, which might as well be 10 million copies for a computer mm. game. Like, that's really, really good sales. Um, it's got very good reviews. People liked it. It's considered one of the best installments of the game. Um, but that said, it was also noted as having a very steep learning curve because of all of this new stuff they put in, kind of all at once with little explanation on how to use it. Um, and on, on top of that, it was made for, like, top-of-the-line specs for PCs at the time. Like, this thing was just a resource hog. So a lot of people just simply had a hard time running it if their computer was more than a year or two old. Um, so it took a, long, a very just demanding game for the hardware uh, of a modern computer. That was one of the tougher things uh, but, about yeah, uh, PC gaming in the, the early 2000s is that, you know, having to... Uh, buy something like having to buy like a piece of software meant also having to have like the the latest computer it, it seems to have evened out a little bit more now or can or pc gaming has become more modular where you can you know uh, install a different graphics card and be okay for a while longer and yeah and, and you can also just sort of down mm. like not every game has to run at max yeah. settings yeah. You know, you know, you can you can run a newer game at lower res settings, or you could just take a game from like five years ago and run it on a, a average laptop for PC from today, and probably looks great. Yeah. Like again, it's just just 
just changes over time. You know, it's again, it's not like a con- consoles are in a totally different space because they make a thing and this thing has to be what it is for like six years. Like Nintendo went absolutely bonkers with the ideas that they were just going to like strap shit onto this <laughs> console and did it. But like the idea of having, you know, like RAM expansions or subbing out a graphics card could may like like in theory could be the alternative to every six years having to shell out six hundred bucks for a new console. Yeah, I think like the the advantage of the the console space they're talking about, like, like having something that's not modular like that, because there are uh, some hardware manufacturers, um, none of the relevant ones that have sort of experimented with having a modular console like hey every once in a while like uh get this new graphics card or something like and insert it here and then you have an upgraded console um the the tough thing about that is it when when you're looking at who's buying consoles the vast vast majority of people who are buying these dedicated gaming machines are people who are like parents buying them for kids people who just want like a more casual experience i want to get my box hook it up to the TV, and just be set for several years. I don't want to have to tinker oh, with absolutely. it. absolutely. Yeah, pe- people don't want that. They they want to just get something that's plug-and-play, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and yeah, and if you get into PC gaming, there's a lot you have to do, like a lot of just maintenance on the vehicle itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's all I got for the, the Pikachu. Do you have anything else for the Porygon? That's it for the Porygon. Okay. I think there's one more game. Yeah, there, right? there's just one more game for the Jigglypuff. Dead or Alive Extreme v- Beach Volleyball came out. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing to say about this game. I just like, whenever I get a chance to poke fun at the Xbox, or sorry, the the, the Jigglypuff, I forgot the naming convention for a second. <laughs> <laughs> whenever I get to make fun of the Jigglypuff, I will. So, you know, on ga- on the GameCube, we're getting like these great Resident Evil games and Skies of Arcadia. The, the Pikachu is still going strong with uh, the, the software. And, you know, you get to play your, your smutty little volleyball game on yep. the Jigglypuff. I mean, there's jet ski racing and uh, your volleyball. And there's a, well, like, there's a yeah. tug of war on little floaty things. Of course. So the loser falls in the water. <laughs> yep. I, I, I think... I looked up a few I, I actually... <laughs> I wrote more notes about this than any other oh, game. Oh, take us away. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so I think this is fascinating. I think this is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a meta discussion that should we have about uh, horny games just simply being allowed to exist. Yeah. You know, I think that's the reason why a lot of this shit didn't exist is because graphics weren't there. Could you imagine like a... We're going we're gonna to see a lot of that this generation. Yeah, yeah, and and like it's it's so weird that people were like, you know, clutching their pearls about this thing, you know, when it's just a, it's like, you know, it's women in bikinis, and you know what? To their credit, if you even read the reviews, they made a pretty solid volleyball simulator. <laughs> um, <laughs> it actually is competently doing the thing it's supposed to do, like. Blood Rain had as much TNA and literally had jiggle physics on the boobs. So it's like, this isn't even new territory. Blood Rain's been out for over a year, right? Or wasn't that like, was that 2001? Like how long, how long that came out a while ago, right? No, well, on, on GameCube, it was 2002. I think PC, it was a little bit earlier. Maybe 2001 on PC. Sorry, Porygon. Yeah, right. So it's like, I think that it's a changing of the times where we have to stop. Like at this time, there was probably this big debate of like, Games is not just for 10-year-olds, right? It's a medium that can be enjoyed by 
people of all ages. Like, literally, I logged into the Switch a few weeks ago, and one of the top ten discount games was like a hentai game. Oh, there's so many oh, of those so that come many. out every week. There's right? like two or three oh, a like week. Like, how times have changed uh, that, you know, 21 years ago, this was like scandalous, and now it's like mm. just so commonplace. I also think it's funny that the developers of this game... Oh, I wrote down their name, didn't I, somewhere? Oh, uh, Team Ninja? They're not the ones that were doing mm-hmm. the auditing counts in uh, Arizona. That was the Cyber Ninjas. Um, but the right, Team Ninja right. here... Get this! <laughs> they made Metroid Other M, Hyrule Warriors, Mar- Marvel Ultimate yeah. Alliance 3. These guys are still yeah. active, and they've got this... Yeah, Team, team Ninja... <laughs> Like Team Ninja is a development studio of Tecmo Koei. Yeah. Uh, and Tecmo is the, the publisher of the, the Dead or Alive games. And they'll, they'll merge with Koei at some point in the mid-2000s. Um, but yeah, Team Ninja is still around, and they work very closely with Nintendo. Yeah. Quite often. So Not on beach volleyball games. The, the, apparently the last um, beach volleyball installment was Extreme 3 Scarlet, um, <laughs> which I was like, all right, they're still, they're still at it. I think they make... Um, Oh, who's the who's the Ninja guy? Ninja Gaiden. They they do the Ninja Gaiden yeah. series as well. So there's yeah. m- more recent Ninja Gaiden games that these guys are also doing. So, um, yeah, I thought this was this was a fun little thing to to just look at as just sort of this meta discussion about games in general and the space that we're in now versus then. And and you know, you it, this this game is very like on the surface it's, it's telling you what it is like yeah. if, if you're buying this game you you know what you're buying it for you know what you're getting into um but the, the sort of like uh uh exposure i suppose that uh, that this game is getting like you'll, you'll see like the same level of of scantily clad characters in just any run-of-the-mill jrpg oh yeah. over the next several decades so, oh yeah, I think someone showed me a video of, like the cold opening of the cyberpunk, and there's just like a topless woman, an unconscious topless woman, mm. like right there. Yeah, like, for like know. a while too. Like you're holding her, and it's just right there in your face as you're like waiting for emergency vehicle to show up, and it, it was ridiculous. I'm like, this that's, is happening. Like that's compelling gameplay. Like, well, it's yeah. compelling well, gameplay right there. Wait for the emergency vehicle to show up. Do like it. it while I was playing this thing and so like I'll sit there for like three minutes with this thing in my face because you're holding her in your arms and then just waiting for the like the ambulance to show up I was like how do I trigger this like can I move on what's 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 the what's the next sequence of gameplay like a baggage claim at an airport god damn what what an amazing game start out by waiting for an emergency vehicle that was ridiculous. yeah I'm sure all of the uh the edge lords are like the future is now yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I think that's it. I think that's all we got for games. That is it. That is it. Cool. Uh, should we uh, do some music? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I don't have a lot of albums to talk about, so we can probably get through this pretty quick. I think, John, you said you have some albums, too. So, I have four albums. I don't really have much to say about any of them. I can get through them in, like, four minutes. Okay. Very cool. Um, Less. I'll just start from the top, and if there are any of yours, if you want to interject, you know, yeah, sounds good. Um, yep. Biggest album of the month, at least according to Album of the Year, which is the website I've been using as long as we've been talking about music. Uh, they have uh, Microphones, their album uh, Mount Eerie. We actually talked about the this artist, Phil Ephraim, back in 2001. He released an album called The Glow Part 2. This is a band I don't hear anybody talk about anymore. I feel like I've never heard anyone in the past 10 years talk about Microphones, in spite of how popular these albums were back in the day. 
it's like lo-fi folk music, like five tracks, like I want to say it's 60, 70 minutes long. It's very long records. I don't know. It's, it's, um, I think if you like headphone music, you'll really appreciate this. But if you just want to hear like calling it a folk record, doesn't really capture what this music is. It's not really folk music. It's more of a noise project than anything. Um, so yeah, I'm not even recommending it. I'm just saying that that it's it's out there. Um, if if you liked the Glow Part Two, which I mean it topped a lot of lists for 2001 music, um, he's he's added again with a comparable album. Um, also in the pop rock category, I've got Kathleen Edwards. She made an album called Thaler. This is like Heartland, alt country kind of rock music. It's pretty good. I like it. Um, she got a, her, vo- her voice is not like stand out for any any way the thing that's like good about her is that she um she's a very good songwriter kind of in the same way that you can appreciate someone like bruce bruce springsteen is like giving you kind of slice of life america her songs capture that a lot there's a big song on here called six o'clock news i like that one a lot um moving on no hip-hop and r&b at all this was not a month for hip-hop and r&b um into punk I've got a Japanese group called Number Girl. Never heard of these guys, um, but they have an album called Omioid in my head. Omioid is a Japanese word that means like memories. So I guess memories in my head. I like this album. I thought it was pretty good. Sounds like Minus the Bear. It's like very intricate guitar rock. Um, Just not, I wouldn't necessarily call it emo. It is in the punk category. So you can kind of imagine there's a little bit of propulsion to it, but um, ultimately it's just really, really smooth. And a kind of technical rock music. I dug it. Um, another Japanese band I will just quickly mention is a band called Clams. Uh, C-L-A-M-S, like the fucking animal in the ocean. Self-titled album, the album Clams by Clams. Really good if you like shoegaze. I would recommend people listen to that album if you are into shoegaze. Um, next group I got is um, a Usurp Synapse. Another group I had never heard of. Um, but this is like apparently just like a kind of hidden gem old school screamo outfit. They have an album called The Disinformation Fix. It is a 61 tracks and 90 minutes long. It is their complete career as a band. Um, we've talked about some other groups uh, like Joshua Fit for Battle and Page 99. If you like that raw, cathartic, old school screamo, that's what these guys are up to. It's a very good record. I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, and lastly, in the punk category, A Static Lullaby. They release an album and don't forget to breathe. Uh, a Static Lullaby is going to be a really, really big emo band in the mid-2000s. More of that like pop punk emo sound. Like Imagine a more polished take on uh, Alexis on Fire we just talked about. The band Under Oath we talked about in a record of theirs recently. Or maybe like if you wanted Brand New to be a little harder, it might come out sounding a little bit like Static Lullaby. Um, I like them. They're very good. Very professional debut. These guys were super young when they recorded this, and this sounds like legit radio-ready rock music, if not for the fact that there's a dude like uh, screaming his head off on it. Um, there's a big hit on here called uh, The Shooting Star That Destroyed Us. Um, I'm about halfway done already. Guys, look at me. I'm doing so good. I am not <laughs> taking up all of our time talking about music. John, why don't you interject? You got some records? I got, a, I got four here that I can get through real quick. Yeah. I listened to The Plot to Blow Up the Eiffel Tower by Dissertation Honey. Oh, yeah. That's like a post-punk band. Yeah. Yeah. It, they remind me a lot of uh, Bad Brains, actually, mm-hmm. with the way they, they sort of uh, take the uh, like old American hardcore and sort of try to fuse in some other, other genres. Like Bad Brains did a lot of also like uh, reggae. 
uh, with uh, with their punk style. Mm-hmm. Like they, it yeah. wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. Uh, I also listened to "Share What You Got" by Defiance Ohio. Uh, oh, this was like, a noise. That's folk punk. Yeah, it's like a folk punk group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's noisy trite garbage, is what it is. Ooh, <laughs> like this is going to be a sound that's pretty big in the mid two thousands. So um, yeah. you're you're going to ruffle some feathers by saying Defiance Ohio well, sucks. This. Uh, I, I'm not saying like the the sound in general, like, but this <laughs> album was bad. Uh, it's a little bit of Yellow Card. It's a little bit of Taking Back Sunday. Nowhere near as good as either one. Yeah. Uh, the chord progressions are entirely predictable. They try to bring in some other instruments over the the course. I think there's like uh, eight or nine songs, but there's yeah. a couple of like um, violin pieces in there as well as a harmonica, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just like uncreative melodies with each of them like the the harmonica song especially like it's just playing the melody of the person that's singing like you're you're gonna like a harmonical that's exactly mirroring the lead vocals like hey if you're gonna bring in these instruments like do something interesting with them fellas anyway did not like that one um then i listened to lowest of the low by terror oh Uh, that was it was loud fast and really mean it was pretty good. <laughs> I I love this record and I love this band. Um, Terror is tag in. Yeah, yeah. Terror is a great, great hardcore band. I believe they're from Southern California, and they're and this this interesting baton pass of a band because I feel like modern times there's more of an interest in their sound, which is like this beat down hardcore punk. Um, but like in the '80s, it was huge in LA. Like there's so much of that sound coming out, you know, from groups like. Uh, Black Flag or even the Descendants had, mm-hmm. had like a little bit of a punch to them. There's a lot of different groups that were doing this, um, and then this group comes along and they've distilled the formula. They've modernized it. The production sounds great. Um, they are clearly heavily influenced by like Madball, Sick of It All, Integrity, um, and they make this debut EP. This is like just an EP too. It's, uh, it's like 16 minutes long. I want to say it's like 10 tracks. So it's really really brisk. Um, and it will be sort of their their blueprint for the albums that they're going to make down the line. And they are so, so good. Um, yeah. I had this album to mention on my, my um, like, metal albums to talk about. Um, this is really a highlight for the month, for sure. And the, the last one that I had was Twilight by The Suicide File. Oh, this was I, another one yeah. That, Suicide File is amazing, too. Yeah. Yeah, this one was another pretty good one. I think the, out of the four of them, this is probably the one I like the most because like they, they, another one that's like uh, like really like hardcore, fast, loud. But I think they did a bit more that like, to mix up the sound a little bit more than the the Terror album. There's a bit more variety to the the types of songs in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's all I got. Yeah, those are those are great records. Uh, apparently, aside from Defiance, Ohio. Um, I'm not even personally a fan of them. I, I just know that like the folk punk sound becomes pretty big. They're, I mean, kind of like Against Me was getting popular mm. in this era. So um, they had one of the best albums of the year last year. I agree. Yeah, it was a fucking great record. Um, okay, but yeah, you... maybe their maybe their follow up albums are better. But this this debut was was not good. No, I think you probably captured it pretty well. I think you're. <laughs> You're looking at it really, really simple songs that use a bunch of folky instrumentation over punk tracks is probably mm-hmm. a pretty good encapsulation of what they're up to. Um, the only other albums I had to talk about, there's an electronic album, a group called The Knife, released an album called Deep Cuts. This is a, a very big album back in the day. Um, again, another group you don't hear people talk about too much anymore, but it was certainly... Um, uh, big hit at the time. They had a single on here called Heartbeats, which was very good. This is a duo from Sweden. They're essentially making synth pop. 
like a sort of 80s sound. It's unique, and the singer has this interesting voice that you really don't... Like, you instantly hear her, and you know the group. You know who this this is. Um, she just has this kind of quality to her. And the sound kit that they use um, has kind of unconventional instrumentation. You hear like a lot of what sounds like timpani drums in it, and a, and a lot of different kinds of synth get layered in it. So, um, I don't know. It's a hard band to describe what they sound like. It's very nostalgic. And it, you know, modern times, I feel like we're super nostalgic for the 80s in a way that creates its own genre in vaporwave. And I think that The Knife was also very reverential of 80s synth music. And it comes through in this just wonderful collection of super melodic, enjoyable dance tracks. So um, The Knife, Deep Cuts, is a, is a very good, very good album. And Into Metal... This was actually a huge month for metal. You, you already mentioned Terror. Like, oh my god, I, I, I do love that uh, that EP from them. Um, also, you have Children of Bodom. They released a Hate Crew Death Roll. I don't even really like these guys that much because it's symphonic. It's symphonic death metal. Um, and to me, it's just a kind of a silly sound, I guess. But this is this one's, this one's all right, and it goes pretty hard at times. And fans of Children of Bodom really like this one. You have a group called Revenge. Um, Revenge, I actually, um, I like these guys quite a bit. I think they're pretty good, but every album of theirs kind of sounds the same. They make a very raw form of death metal that mixes in sort of the aesthetic of black metal. Um, the album, by the way, is called Triumph Genocide Antichrist. That's okay. Jeez. Good for the kids. With, Great album. With decimals. So yeah, it's like Triumph, Decimal, Genocide, Decimal, Antichrist. All their albums are like this, by the way. All of their albums have a black cover with a white circle and some weird picture in it. And then there's always three different words in that format. I don't know why they do this, but it's their thing. Um, yeah, it's really fucking abrasive. If you just listen to this record, you gonna be like, what the fuck is this? Because it's got this, again, it's a very lo-fi record. And um, the drums are just absolutely frantic. The vocals are just like, gross. Um, and then it, the... There, there's just like this constant churn of guitar riffs that create this sort of um, ambient sound to the album that, I don't know, you kind of just got to give it a listen. It's a, it's a really weird record, um, and people that like more extreme metal might find something rewarding there. They give it a try. Um, Municipal Waste releases an album called Waste Em All. Uh, if you guys if you have any by any chance have you ever heard of these guys, Municipal Waste? No. no. Okay, they are state... Almost, I wouldn't call them a joke band, but you would think this was sort of a joke band that wouldn't last forever, but they've been one of the longest-running thrash metal bands in recent memory. Like, the, this is their debut record. Um, it's like 16 minutes and 16 tracks. They're they're playing on a sound... Efficient. Yeah, very efficient. A lot of 30, 40-second songs um, mixed in with, like... I don't think it, many of the tracks go over two minutes. It's all very briskly paced. Um, and yeah, I, I love these guys. I think they're good. They're playing this this style of thrash metal that was popular in the '80s called um, crossover thrash. And crossover thrash is more like, you know, more like uh, hardcore punk mixed in with thrash metal, as opposed to like the you know the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, you know, a, a, it's hard to describe, but a band like say, for example, Metallica never even approaches sounding like a crossover group but like say you take i don't know suicidal tendencies or stormtroopers of death artists like that would be pretty a, a band um a band called um 
Uh, nuclear Assault is one of the biggest in this scene, and that's who this band is very heavily influenced by. I'm talking a lot about this because I really do love this record. I think it's a great record, and it's a really cool sound um, that is very dated, frankly, but like it's cool how they brought it back. And this album itself honestly isn't even that good. Like The next few albums are going to make are way, way better than this, but this is still like a really fun record, and it's one for like people that love the history of metal. It's clear these guys grew up on this music and they really like it a lot. And they're going to release tons and tons of records. Very consistent. This is going to be one of the most more consistent bands of the metal scene. Every three or four years, they release a new record. Um, and they'll actually be in Orlando, I think, in a couple of months. I'm probably going to go see them. So that'll be fun. One last uh, one last album to talk about. Um, a group called Spawn of Possession released now. I'm called Cabinet. Um, you asked me if, if I would have an uh, album of the month, and it's this one. Uh, I, I, I think this is a very special record. Um, nowadays, like technical death metal is a big thing, and I think it's because it's easier to be good at it. It's easier to make an album that sounds like competent technical death metal, um, and that it's very, you know, very intricate, and the production's good. And they're doing it kind of at a time when you really don't have all of the bells and whistles of modern production. Um, and this album sounds fantastic. Um, it's really, really hard. It's really heavy. Um, everybody is just on fire all the time. Um, pick any instrument and in your head, just isolate it as you listen to it. And everyone's just going buck wild. Like this is a, a really fun and intense, heavy album without sacrificing any melody or punch. Um, really do enjoy this. And, and at the time, like, and I was even like, okay, so wait, what do we have to compare this to at the time? You have Origin. And Origin is basically sort of like a, a band trying to test the limits of death metal in a way that doesn't even make enjoyable music, frankly. Like, they're just trying to play as fast and as hard as they can without the idea of making anything that might be enjoyable. Um, you've got uh, Cephalic Carnage, who are just too weird for their own good. They'll do these little bursts of it, but they mix in all this other shit. And, like, Goreguts like hasn't released and like they they released one album in the past 10 years prior to this and it's the closest thing to technical death metal so um spawn of possession is a killer killer band and very important for forming the sound um so they released this album cabinet and i'm gonna stick with it it is the album of the month hell yeah oh oh uh game of the month skies of arcadia any objections i'm fine with that uh, dead or alive, extreme beach volleyball. <laughs> well, you're outvoted. Um, but like, hey, that, that was great. I think we like we did the music segment in under 15 minutes. Yeah. Oh hell People yeah! Aren't fully and asleep. that's with you coming in with four. Yeah. What did you say? People West? aren't asleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we uh, go over to movies? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I don't recognize. I a do lot have of these. two. A lot of these I don't. I do have two movies that um from from december that i did get a chance to watch that would just like do for two seconds here uh, i watched adaptation and ryan you saw that one too right yes yeah i love that movie it's great yeah i thought that was really really good a uh, really great performance by uh, nicholas cage mm-hmm. um and in in a movie where you know it's about a writer trying to write a movie but like the the story that he's trying to write about with uh, meryl streep and Chris Cooper, their two characters uh, living the Florida life, um, and, and how it like comes together with like his own struggles with adapting this book into a script. Uh, I think it all comes together really well. Uh, a terrible 
like really heartbreaking what happens with his brother. That was a, a really <laughs> yeah. hard moment to get through. Um, but like the the movie is like um, like depressed, but still like at times very silly and uh, deals with very serious topics as well. Like it, it it's a really like a movie that reaches a lot of different emotional points um i thought it was really good and a movie like it it's about a writer so it should just end up being like self-indulgent but manages to like bring itself back around to where like it it acknowledges what it is doing and gives you something interesting to watch oh yeah yeah i'd agree i I think um you know it's a it's a meta comedy and i think usually when you Mm -hmm. describe something as a meta comedy what it means is that the plot's going to be confusing um, and I think this one's one of the easiest to follow along in terms of narrative. Yeah. And it's very clever how they yeah. pay it off where, you know, the the thing that he has writer's block trying to write sort of becomes real. And the last third of the movie is sort of him living through the fictional narrative that he made about these two people who are, again, in real life. And like yeah. The Orchid Thief is a real book. And it's based on a, a real woman who followed a guy who was doing that. And it's not like this really happened either. <laughs> like it's 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 funny because like he's writing this pure fiction about the two of them like hooking up and all of this stuff and him murdering his brother, <laughs> like in, in a swamp in Florida. <laughs> oh yeah, and then yeah. he gets eaten by a gator. We're spoiling the entire movie. Oh yeah, I mean if if you didn't see this one yet, you know that's that's your fault. Um, but no, I, I think it's great, and you got a lot of fun performances, and Nick Cage doing both brothers, and also that mm-hmm. like he gets to. It's probably really exciting for Charlie Kaufman to write about the other brother because he gets to do the things he kind of would feel ashamed to do as an artist. Like he, he looks down on the way this guy writes what he considers formulaic thrillers, but then like everyone loves the formulaic thrillers. Mm-hmm. Like his book is more successful. Like the 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 sorry the script that they're that he's writing, his brother is writing, who is as best as he could tell is like schlocky bad writer, <laughs> is the one that Hollywood's more interested than his own script. You know, like where he's trying to like do this high minded art. Yes. Yeah. Um, like, and, and you get this really great moment with uh, with Brian Cox, where you know, I, yes. Charlie Kaufman has like mm-hmm. such writer's block that he attends like this this writing seminar, and Charlie Cox gets to to do this rant, or sorry, not Charlie Cox, Brian Cox gets to do this rant about uh, uh, writing and how like life isn't boring. You can write about life and not make something totally boring. It's a really really great uh, rant that he's going on. Oh, it's yeah, it's a it's one of the all time great rants in cinema. <laughs> Um, and then the other one from December of 2002 that I watched was um, about Schmidt, which was another one that I really liked. Yeah, yeah, this is one I think this is my third time watching it. And every time I've watched it, my opinion has improved even more of it. I think the first time I saw it, I was like, that was interesting, but I was probably too young to appreciate it. And the next time I saw it, I was like, that's great. And then this time, most recently revisiting it, it is a powerfully good movie i think that the older you are and the more life experiences you have this narrative will resonate with you yeah for sure uh and that's of course the the jack nicholson one where is he he's uh, a man who's retired and then he's he's dealing with uh the, the death of his wife and his daughter getting married he's basically dealing with his own mortality and uh, realizing that you know his life might not have worked out the the way he thought it was going to. Some, some sort of coming to terms with what his life is going to be for the remainder of it. 
Um, Kathy Bates is tremendous. Yeah, yeah, in this great. movie, mm-hmm. she's really, really good. Also, um, oh, I forget his name, but the the actor who plays the son-in-law is, is also really, really good in this movie. Mole, Mole, Molevoy. What is the guy's name? Mulvaney. Dylan Maybe. Mulvaney. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but yeah, he, I, I kept on like expecting him to like make a turn because like he's he's a sweet guy. Oh, is and it he, Dermot Mulrooney? Is that who it is? Is it? Dermot oh, Mulroney? maybe. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. But oh, sorry. He, Go ahead. he's this he's this total like dunce waterbed salesman, but he's like he's very earnest. He's as equally earnest as he is dumb. Um and like I, I kept on like expecting him to like make a turn and sort of like become like our our unexpected hero that kind of brings everyone together, but that's not really what the movie is. No. Um the movie's not about, you know, our our waterbed salesman hero. It's it's uh, all, all about uh, Jack Nicholson and his uh, journey that he's going on. Well, yeah, and it's about. Well, I think it's about, yeah, it's about him realizing that he's reached kind of the twilight of his life, and that he doesn't have much to show for it. He has no real joy in his life. He doesn't even have hobbies. He doesn't really have friends. Mm-hmm. You know, like the only friend he has, it reveals that like thirty years ago had been cheating on him with his now deceased wife. Yeah. You know, um, like there's that that one scene early on in the movie that so much captures about him is his sense of obsolescence is like when he has all of those meticulously organized boxes of paperwork from his job and then he's leaving the office and he sees that they've all basically just been thrown in the dumpster. Like yeah. his entire yeah. life's work was was that and it goes it's, it's pointless. It's kind of pointless that he even did it all, you know, um, and, and to have, you know not really come away from it with a job that he loved or like with any real meaning from it must be so, so painful. Um, you, you know, and it also, it's about the relationships he has. Like he clearly does not understand at all what his relationship is with his daughter because his daughter's sort of like, you've been removed from my life for so long. Like what makes you think you're entitled to come into it now and tell me about this guy I'm marrying who you look down upon and you think I deserve better when it's like, I'm no better than he is. I am an average person just like him, you know, and you haven't been there for, like, you haven't been there for me. And like, Oh my God, it's like, this movie got to me twice. Like, I don't think I cried during a single movie this entire year, but I almost did twice for this fucking movie. And one of them is when he's giving that speech at the wedding reception, when like he's, or he has told her multiple times how this guy is a fuck up. And she, like she deserves someone so much better and she's just like if you be there just don't say anything and then he gives that speech and it's a speech where he thanks the family and he's like you know very conciliatory and saying they're nice and you can just see her kind of in the background just like kind of closing up because she knows everything he's saying is the opposite of what he really believes but he's doing it for her you know he doesn't want to make a scene at this wedding because it's kind of the one thing that would make her happy. And even then, like, and she has this big blow up at her fiance before then too. And it's, God, there's so many fascinating character moments in this movie that I absolutely loved. Um, oh, and think about his haircut. This is maybe the worst, ha- not not, not uh, Nicholson's haircut, but uh, uh, Dermot Mulrooney, the fiance, or if, if it is him. Yeah. Like his yeah, haircut yeah. has all of the following. It's a mullet. <laughs> he has a bald spot. He has widow's. He has widow's peaks. He has a bony ta- a ponytail. He has a goatee with the chin shaved. 
Uh-huh. It is every bad haircut decision <laughs> you could make all at once on one guy's head who is a traditionally handsome man. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they, they everything they could do to ugly this guy up. Oh my god, that haircut is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's so <laughs> deliberate. All of it feels so deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Like you're you're they they do everything they can do to like make it to like, well, you you understand why uh Nicholson hates him. But just like makes him more endearing. Oh yeah, yeah. Um and then the last part, the thing that really did kind of break me down was the very final scene of the movie. Cause you know, they establish early on he adopts this kid from Tanzania named Undugu. Yeah. And all it Which is Which might is, be a scam. Yeah, yeah. And and all it is that he's supposed to be doing is like Hey, Ndugu, I'm giving you some money to, f- to help your village. And he uses it, he like thinks this is some kind of induction into his actual family. That this is how little he values family. That some kid he's never really going to meet or interact with deserves his deepest, darkest observations that yeah, he writes it becomes in these like letters. His, his, yeah, his, his one outlet where he can like just like emotionally express. Uh, everything that he's going through without having to to put up this filter like if he's he's trying to talk to someone like res- preserve the relationship with his daughter or anything like that he can be like purely honest in these letters that he's writing and you get like the most like his dissatisfaction of his life because like everything he's doing like um well, but before like when he was doing his job he was like dissatisfied with it and he's dissatisfied with the way he left it and how things are being how things are going but he's like dissatisfied with the way his retirement is going because it, it's very clear at the beginning like he didn't want to get an rv and travel around the country that was something his wife wanted to do and then you know, she passes away and then he's kind of like left with like i have this vehicle now i guess i'm going to use it even though that's not the thing that i want to do and you, right, you have right. you have to wonder like what was there anything that this man likes doing what does he actually want to do and he's he's not sure he doesn't know yeah, he, he lives a life completely devoid of joy. He has nothing in his life that brings him happiness. And it's, it's so sad to see. And then it closes out, you know, after he's been writing letter after letter over there, he gets a letter back and it's from like someone in the village who's like, uh, Nduku's six um, and he can't read. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he drew you, but, and then it's like this, thank you, but thank you for the money and thank you for supporting the village. It, it, uh, it helps him and it helps us. And he made you this drawing, and then you see the drawing, and it's Ndugu and him holding hands. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the most meaningless thing that he's done is that small donation of money to a kid halfway around the world that he'll never see. But that's a very pure moment in this otherwise kind of emotionally ugly movie. Um, and it is the beautiful punctuation to this where it you hope he sees what you see in that moment of it there there being value in life and the relationships you build you know if you if you invest yourself in it, and if you invest yourself in other people i guess i mean maybe i'm overreading this um i thought this was a very beautiful message for what is kind of a very very dark and acidic comedy you know yeah yeah for sure no i think it's a a great way of like getting getting something nice out of uh, a movie where not a lot of people are nice to each other I mean, just just like that dinner scene at his future like in-laws house with like oh, kathy God, bates yeah. and her husband and the children there like god it is it is just like gross and uncomfortable and everyone is very very nasty to each other yeah <laughs> 
Uh, and yeah, Kathy, Kathy Bates is amazing in this movie too. Yeah, she really is yeah. a scene stealer for like that middle third of the film where she's involved. Yeah, she's she's magnetic. Oh, like and, when when yeah. she's off camera, it's like when's she coming back? <laughs> the last thing that I, I have to say about it is. Um, Oh, just that apparently so Jack Nicholson will win the Golden Globe, I believe it is, for best actor in a drama for this. And during his exception speech, he says, I'm surprised I was nominated for best dramatic actor. I thought we made a comedy. (laughs) That's how dark this movie is. I think it is a comedy, but it's one that is profoundly sad. Hmm. Oh, should we talk about some movies that actually came out in January of 2003? We, you know, we should. We should. I don't know if we should have rambled for 10 minutes about fucking, about Schmidt. Yeah, you really <laughs> no, we went should. on for a minute there. <laughs> oh, I, I loved this movie. I think, it, it, again, it's makes the, it, it's probably like top five movie of 2002. Uh, where do you want to start in 2003? I mean, I can just go down the list if you want. Let's do it. Uh, City of God. Oh, us? we want to, oh, it's so good. Yes. Yes, it is. Like we have, we have an early front runner for movie of the year. City of God is so goddamn good, uh, and I've seen this movie three or four times now. Just recently, I just finished rewatching it again today. Yeah, um, extremely good movie. Had you have you seen it before? Before this mm-hmm. came up in the retro show? Yeah, nice. yeah. I've actually I've actually seen this one a couple times. Hmm. Um, but it's yeah, it's yeah, uh, but it's sort of like uh, an anthology of a life in these slums of Rio de Janeiro. So I, I believe it's all in Portuguese, but the, the sort of like people moving throughout this, this slum and living in this slum and how they all connect to each other. Um, but it's, it's grisly and it's violent uh, and it's, it's shot so, so well, it's so well composed um, but it's just the, the sort of general theme of like uh, violence just begetting more violence, and this is this endless cycle. And the only way to break out of the cycle is just to make the decision: like I'm not going to partake in the violence of mm-hmm. it. We're going to just break it off and, and cut it off with me. And the, and yeah, and that's what that's what makes the, is it Rocket right? That's the main character yeah. that we're following through it. That's kind of what makes him different from the other people is that he's like the one guy that generally stays away from gang violence and doesn't get addicted to drugs. Kind of keeps mm-hmm. it clean, and, and he has has that hobby. He has filmmaking or, no, or, or photo take photography is like his thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you, you follow a bunch of different characters, and a lot of the characters, you know, some of them might get introduced very quickly and then the, the narrator rocket who's narrating will say well we'll talk about him later and that happens a couple of times and like you'll yeah. you'll see characters come and go and then take on a bigger part at different points in the movie and like and and just how like interconnected everything is he has to start like the story way way back to where him and our primary antagonist uh little dice who then becomes little z um when they were when they were children, and he has to start telling a story about like their older brothers and how they got involved in sort of like uh, uh, gang activity or miscreant activity, criminal activity, uh, and how that just sort of uh, led to more and more uh, like escalating violence and escalating uh, like criminal activity. Uh, but you, you spend like the first thirty minutes of the movie in this of this two hour movie in this flashback. Uh, and there's just like so much connective tissue that's laid down in the start of it that then just permeates the rest of the film. 
characters that you don't think will end up like doing anything like kind of throwaway characters end up coming back in big ways like everyone yeah. has their their role to play and everyone has uh their their sort of own motivations and goals and there there are and i think like that's one of the most uh impressive things about the movie is like there's a larger implication there's a larger understanding when you're watching it that there are things happening off screen simultaneously and there there are times like they the the director the filmmakers use what would kind of be considered sort of like amateurish techniques to really beautifully to to illustrate a point like there are a couple of times they go to split screen to just show you like hey these things are happening at the same time and something that you think is important happening here is being juxtaposed with something else that's happening right here oh yeah i think that the cinematography throws away a lot of the conventions you get a lot of Mm -hmm. just um handheld shots really like right up in the scene you know it really does create this sort of kinetic and alive environment that you feel like you're a part of and like you're saying, so snappy. It, it moves through these characters so fast. It gives you these... It's like this whole series of connected short stories, practically, where you you see a lot of, you know... Like like when you're saying that first probably 30 minutes of the movie, we spend our time with his older brother and his two best friends, this this trio. And, you know, one basically... You know, it, it things spiral for them. One gets shot dead by the cops. You know, one joins the clergy. And then the last one is shot dead by Lil Z who himself murdered a ton of people in cold blood. This guy is clearly like a psychopath. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and you're watching sort of as he gets older, sort of how this drug trade emerges and how it gets bigger and how he's, you know, just connected to them tangentially, but you sort of follow along in the story and you see how, you know, his close friend was also tight with the Lil Z's character and, you know, he sort of gets just gets killed at one point and everything just falls apart. Um, yeah. You know, you have the introduction of a guy who had come back from the war and was just kind of working a normal job who sort of gets turned to the dark side and himself yeah. becomes a kingpin. Knockout Ned. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and yeah, further illustrating the point, like when, when he, you know, he, he's wronged by Lil Z pretty severely and then... Uh, things continue to escalate where Lil Z just keeps on like uh, going after Knockout Ned for some really petty reasons, and then Knockout Ned just snaps. And when he like when he first snaps, he's like, "Hey, we're not going to, or we're, we're going to like go and take out Lil Z. We're going to end his operation, his sort of kingpin operation in these slums, but we're not going to hurt anybody." Uh, and then it turns into okay, well, we'll hurt people only in self-defense. And then it turns into okay, we're gonna have some preemptive self-defense. And then like, he's just like all out committing like war crimes in this gang. Um, but like you were saying, like super well paced. You have like all of these little scenes that uh, connect to each other really well. It is like I had planned on like watching this in chunks okay i'm gonna i'll watch like 30 minutes while i'm on my lunch break at work and then i'll go home and i'll watch another 30 minutes but it's like it's so easy just to get pulled in that i couldn't pull myself away from from watching it uh on my on my lunch break at work and there was only like one moment where i had to be like okay i need to put this down for a bit yeah and it's when lil z goes after the runs and you get like these moments of like extreme brutality against these young children i'm talking like five six-year-olds where you have that moment like hey choose whether i shoot you in the hand or the foot 
and it is it's so brutal and it's so difficult to watch and i won't spoil where the scene goes but no matter how bad you think that scene gets it gets so much fucking worse and like when that scene was over like i need to walk away from this for a bit because it is it is so so draining yeah it really is um this movie has that does not hold any punches um yeah I actually, in, in retrospect, I was just kind of reading what other people were thinking about it. And I never really thought of the movie as this, but it very much is. It gets a lot of comparisons to Goodfellas. Hmm. Um, and I think Goodfellas is the same way where it's like a, the very similar pacing and a lot of introductions of characters. And you very quickly see their arcs and how they all are part of this giant web of people in organized crime. Um, yeah just uh again i like you said it at the top of the bill right like this is we're starting off with one of the best movies of the year yep so and i think like where would i i can understand the the comparisons to goodfellas i think that's a pretty apt comparison i think where i would draw a distinction is like scorsese uh it's it's all of his moves are very like tightly directed uh, he knows exactly what he's going to compose and he goes for it. And there are things about the City of God that are very improvisational. Like the a lot of a lot of the scenes the director didn't have actors, like didn't have like marks put down. Like, no, just just stand wherever. And I think that like goes to to further um, make it even more impressive the cinematography because like the the camera's like moving around like it, it puts you in the middle of the scene because the camera's having to move around to capture everybody because they none of them have like official marks that they're standing on. They're kind of moving around wherever they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it puts you right in the middle of that. And it also like further expands like, Hey, there's, there's things happening outside of the frame. It's, it's not just like this tightly composed shot that you're looking at. Things are happening outside of the things that you're seeing It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me move on. Uh, why don't we follow it up with just married? <laughs> I did not watch this movie. I didn't watch it. It either. looks stupid. Oh, okay, but yeah, this is made by Sean Levy, who made Big Fat Liar prior to this, and would make Free Guy and Deadpool. He's signed on to make Deadpool three. Oh, fascinating! The director of Just Married is going to make Deadpool three. How about that? Isn't this the the Ashton Kutcher? Yep. It's Ashton Kutcher yes. and I don't know the girl, Brittany Brittany Murphy. Sure. May she rest in peace. Yeah, uh, fresh off of uh, Eight Mile. Mm, yeah. 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 So yeah, it's, it's, there. Forward it's, here? it's probably, Oh, uh, numbers. Uh, Oh, by the way, oh, yeah. city of God cost three and it made 30. Um, Good. But Good like, whatever people remember that movie is, is amazing. It doesn't care about, no one cares about it's $30 million in gross. Uh, Just married cost 18 and it made 101. Oh, Oof. yikes. Tied for the highest grossing movie of the month. Um, well, movies in the month. That's like the only, there, there's only like one other comedy even that month? I mean, you got Kangaroo Jack and stuff, but it's the only one like that that came out that month. Yeah, I don't think Lost in La- I don't think Lost in La Mancha is going to be bringing home the big <laughs> no, bucks. No, no, no. So, I mean, of this list, many people, I mean, see, God did made a lot of money up based on what's cost and everything like that, but Just Married is like the movie out of this list other than maybe National Security that will like grab people's well, attention. Oh, it's Final yeah, Destination and, too, and, as well. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, like, Lord of the Rings Two Towers is probably still in theaters. Oh, that's know? a good point. Like, there, there's a ton of stuff that came out in Jan or in December that's probably still in the theater right now that people are going to be going to see. That's a good point. You know, mm-hmm. it's 
Yeah, at this point, all of the award-nominated shows are out, so everyone's probably going to be like, oh, okay, I guess I got to go see Chicago, or I got to go, you know, check out uh, something like About Schmidt, <laughs> you know? Or Catch Me If You Can. Mm-hmm. I mean, Astrid Kusher was pretty big that time, too. For sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, For sure. it was. Yeah. All right, whatever. But you might... Yeah, you mentioned it a second ago. The next film I have is Kangaroo Jack. I'm, I'm not defending uh, the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, made by Dave McNally, uh, whose only other film is Coyote Ugly, which came out like what, two years ago. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I actually watched this movie. Have you guys ever seen this movie? No. No. I think I may have watched it once um, when I was younger. Yeah, it's it makes the list of like worst movies ever made. So I kind of had to watch it. Like, I'm not gonna watch a movie if it's bad, but if it's worst movie ever made, caliber bad, I'm intrigued. I mean, it's got Christopher Walken um, in it, so how bad could it be? I'll I'll tell you, not that bad. It really is not that bad of a movie. Um, yeah, Christopher Walken and Michael Shannon are gangsters in it. Um, okay. They're, oh shit! Are they like are they buddies? That's a father and son duo. Ah, what that's a duo! Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Are they the bad guys? Um, yeah, yeah, they're the bad guys. Yeah, they want to. Um, it's I'm not. You know, I don't care. The plot's stupid. Don't worry about the plot. <laughs> um, <laughs> really, it's Jerry O'Connell and Anthony Anderson are sort of this this duo that have to go to Australia because the mob tells them to, basically. Um, and hijinks do. ensue. <laughs> yeah. Um, and honestly, like I know people said this was a terrible, terrible movie. It's not. It's it's like. It's the third worst movie this month, in my opinion. Like, it's not that bad of a movie. Um, and it's the, the biggest thing that appa- apparently, so what happened with this movie, and the reason why it's so strange is that it was originally shot as an R rated comedy. Like, there was going to be nudity and violence and stuff in it, but it tested really poorly. So they recut it to make it a, more of a family oriented PG 13 wow. movie. <laughs> and turned it into one of the worst movies ever made. Essentially, yeah, or at least the reputation as such. Wow. And and part right. of it is I don't know if you guys remember the trailer of it at all. Do you remember anything about a rapping kangaroo? Yeah. Yes, I remember. Like so, the, the general plot, and you said we weren't going to do it, but generally, like a kangaroo takes a hoodie, and then they're after the kangaroo, and the mob is after them. And like at at one point, it becomes like this. Like, they, they get like like bitten by like a venomous snake or something, and like they get into a fever dream, and the kangaroo becomes a cartoon and starts rapping at them. Has like a poochie moment. Yeah, yeah. That that's a very good way to 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 spell it out. They have this hallucination, and they see him rapping. And I think if you watch the trailer, that's a big moment in the trailer. And I think a lot of people thought that the whole movie was gonna be about this kangaroo, and it's not. Like. There, that is a hallucination mm. for two minutes and then at the very end of the movie as a joke during the credits it comes back but none <laughs> of the movie is about that the rest of the movie is basically like a cleaned up PG-13 raunch comedy this is like a weird wily e. Coyote and Roadrunner kind of thing <laughs> where they're just trying to <laughs> trying to get the kangaroo <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> So, um, it, it honestly, like, it's, yeah, it's, it's just somewhere in the middle. It's not, not bad, but it's, it's, I mean, I mean, it's, it is bad, but it's not that bad. It's just not particularly good either. It's got a, the occasional moment that where there's some funny stuff happening. One of the most overcommitted fart scenes I've seen in a movie in a while. <laughs> okay. Like there's a long, maybe minute, minute and a half scene involving all of them and camels farting. <laughs> which I'll just leave it to you to watch the movie to experience that moment yourself. It's in- it's interesting, like, they're in Australia, right? <laughs> yeah, sure enough. 
it's it's interesting that they bring up camels because I don't know if you guys know this, but camels in Australia are an invasive species. Like oh, they're really? a nuisance. Oh, yeah. So good. Australia Australia has a camel problem. Like to the point where oh, like there's God. like uh, uh you, it doesn't take much to get a license to hunt the camels. Because like they're very disruptive to the environment. They're not native to Australia. They were brought there and now the population is out of control. See, that's so, hilarious because Australia is where nightmares are born and their biggest problem are right. camels. <laughs> so <laughs> I know, that's a good point. It's like eight of the world's ten most venomous snakes are all in Australia. <laughs> they're, they're spiders larger than my head. I mean, yeah, we're we're good. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, like legit, like they don't like the camels there. <laughs> that's so good. That, that's you know it was so wild. I was so just dulled by this movie. It never computed to me that there's a. It's weird that there's camels in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> that's how my how much my brain was fried. Oh my god! This movie that's so good. I, I want my see favorite this thing. R rated version of Kangaroo Jack. Right. I would love to that's... see the R rated version. You know, like oh, they use every excuse they can to get Jerry O'Connell out of his shirt. I mean, this movie could use a little TNA to even the balance. So, <laughs> um, oh, and yeah, a, a scene where he's playing Dead or Alive Extreme Volleyball. Maybe, hey, maybe. Um, oh, and you know what? To that to that point, Australia looks amazing. The, Australia mm-hmm. is actually gorgeous, and, and they use a lot of crane shots in it, so you can kind of see the outback and all its glory. It's it's very very when they, when they're shooting outside, very pretty. Um, and also get this, uh, they, they they are like it's not just a rapping kangaroo. Sometimes the kangaroo just makes noises. And you know who they hired to do that for us? Our boy Frank Welker, and like he is not changing his nibbler voice at all. It is nibbler from <laughs> Futurama is his voice for a kangaroo. Nice. Um, so honestly, it's it's okay. It's it's okay. I, I don't recommend anyone watch it, but I'm not mad that I watched it. It was fine. <laughs> cool. Um, oh yeah, it cost sixty and made eighty nine, and I imagine probably seventy million of that is upset parents. <laughs> uh, wondering why they brought their kids to this shit <laughs> next movie I got is National Security I don't have a solid budget for it but it made 54 this is a uh, Martin Lawrence Martin Lawrence is yeah, in this? Martin Lawrence and uh, Steve Zahn yeah yeah from um, so like that that uh, God, John what was that movie we really liked that he's in that thing you where did where he's um, Steve Zahn huh? Steve Zahn? Yeah. He's in that, that thing with, where they're trying to find Sasquatch for a nature documentary. Oh, wild yeah. something. Yeah, that movie's stupid. That movie's stupid, but <laughs> I enjoy so it so much. Dumb. That's so great. Steve, Zahn, Steve Zahn's in Banditas. Really oh, movie. is he really? Yeah, yeah. Well, he is punching way above his weight class. Strange right? Wilderness. Yeah. Strange Wilderness. Strange, Strange wilderness. wilderness. Yeah, I remember because this movie. I'm gonna fo- spoil the shit of it right now. Like they're on the hunt for Sasquatch the entire thing, and then when they finally see it, they all freak out and have guns for some reason. <laughs> just fucking pump them full of bullets. Got them down to the entrance's cave. <laughs> it's so fucking like the punchline is so fucking weird in that movie. What a also way they actually showed the documentary. Just the just the covers that he did on top of like the shark. Oh god, it's. Mm. It's it's just oh it's such a stupid movie but it's so much fun. Anyway, that's not national <laughs> no, security. Not. Sounds like a better movie than national security. Though. <laughs> yeah, this is a buddy cop movie that they fail as cops and become security guards and then there's a crime and then they stop the crime and they probably end up as cops again. I I don't know. I, I've You've seen it seen once. This one I've seen it once years ago. Oh, okay. 
Well, Dennis Dugan apparently directed Happy Gilmore and Big Daddy. Mm -hmm. So, like, he's not the worst comedic director. I remember this movie being fine, but again, I saw it years ago, so, I mean, it may not be. I don't know. I feel like Martin Lawrence has, like, 15 movies like this, where the cover is, like, him and a white dude doing cop stuff. He just wants to be a cop. (laughs) When when is he not a cop? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. And it always plays the cop that is so Black Knight. Cop. <laughs> Black Knight. He's not a cop in oh, Black Knight. There we Knight. go. We found it. We found the one movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to move on? Should we yes. get yep. on the next one? Darkness Falls. I watched this one. You watched this one too? I did watch this one. This is a movie um, I would consider worse than Kangaroo Jack. <laughs> what a dull movie. Yeah. What a, like, what a waste of everyone's fucking time. So I guess like the general premise is it's, it's supposed to be a horror movie, like a, a psychological horror, or like or even maybe like goes as far as like a, a creature horror movie, or maybe like something akin to Nightmare on Elm Street, where they're being haunted by this this entity, and this uh, this thing that's haunting them is the the spirit or soul of a woman who lived back in like the the pioneer days, and. She suffered a, a tragic injury. She was uh, burned, severely disfigured. She could only go out at night because apparently the, the sun hurts her skin for some reason. Um, it's a very contrived way of saying that she can only come out at night when she's a ghost. And uh, the, the the good deed that she's doing around town is she like, becomes the Tooth Fairy. It's an evil Tooth Fairy movie. And like, if, yeah. if you look at her when she's dropping off teeth or exchanging teeth for money or whatever, uh, she decides that you need to be murdered because you saw her. Um, yeah, it's it's so difficult to describe what happens in this movie because nothing really happens in this movie. It's such, like, weirdly low stakes. Like, I, I don't yeah. just, like, like what, just, just leave the town. Just, like, no one live in this town anymore and you won't have to worry about the evil tooth fairy coming to get you. Yeah, um, this is definitely, like, I struggle to really have, like, my, my mind just did not want to retain anything about this movie. Like, I made it through it, and, like, the ending with, you know, the lights, and you got to stay in the light, and then they briefly show the monster, and it doesn't look particularly interesting, even. So it's like, you made me wait all this time to kind of fully show me what it looks like, and I it looks really hacky. I don't yeah. recognize any you know? of the actors. Uh, there's a young Emily Browning in the start of the movie. Sure. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting like, that... keep it, So you know what the runtime of this movie is? Uh, Eight, I'm going to guess 89 minutes. It is 83 minutes. Mm-hmm. The closing credit sequence is 11 minutes long. <laughs> they made 71 minutes of actual movie. 71 minutes of very uninteresting movie. I mean, yeah. your most positive thing about Morbius was that it was a brisk 90 minutes, so I mean... <laughs> Morbius is a much more... <laughs> at least Morbius like had something that you could like watch and sort of uh, ingest intellectually. Like You could actually take it in and understand what you were seeing. This movie is like... like uh, 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 like a, a perception filter from Doctor Who, like you, you can't understand. Like it's actively trying to repel your thoughts and observation. Yeah, I, again, I've I've said that before, where it's like a movie can be good or bad. What it can't do is be in, don't don't not be entertaining. If that makes sense, don't be boring. You could be a bad movie, and if you're entertaining, I love it. I don't care. <laughs> if it's a good movie and it's entertaining, that's great. 
If a movie's boring, you fucked up. And this movie is boring. It's really boring. Yep. Um, oh, it co- oh, cost, yeah. cost 11 and it made 47. It actually did surprisingly well. God, yeah, that's weird. Oh, and the director, this is his debut, Jonathan Liebsman. He would go on to direct a bunch of big things. Like, he's responsible for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot, Battle L.A., uh, the 2014 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. He's been given oh, some, like, like close to $100 million budgets. That's crazy. Yeah, so, I don't know. He must know somebody. Yeah, I mean, hey, you know what? He took 11 and made 47, and I bet you every one of those other movies he's made probably doubled the budget at least, so like, yeah. he make, he makes his money back for sure. Uh, well, Rider? Yeah, I got that one, and I watched this one. I watched that one too. Um, I, I really did. I, I love this movie. I think it, it's good. Um, you know, I don't think this is, you know, one of those ones when I think of, like, uh, profoundly amazing cinema or anything, but this is one of the most just beautiful heart-told heart stories. Um it's about a young girl in New Zealand who, um, through tragic circumstances, is technically supposed to be the next in line for like the title of chief. Um, but because she's a girl, um, her grandfather kind of withholds it from her and doesn't want her to become chief. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of her sort of proving herself to her grandfather and trying to cast aside old traditions um, you know, it's it's and, and it, obviously it sounds like it's a kind of a feminist film, but I don't really, I don't think it's it's not too heavy-handed with that stuff. It's not preaching. Um, at no point does the grandfather seem like a bad guy. He just, you know, he's stuck in his way, and he's really upset that his son has abandoned. Well, both of them are upset that their son that his son and her father have abandoned them and left the this the small New Zealand community. Um, but just yeah it's it's a really sweet film it's a very very nice film i liked it what would you think of it i liked it too i think yeah like like you're saying like very heartfelt very earnest um because like you have this girl who really does want to participate in this very like traditional culture that they are into like she wants to preserve the the culture of the these people who are um indigenous to new zealand and she's so often dismissed by her grandfather, someone she really looks up to. She like does a school project where she like writes a speech about how much she respects the guy, and he does not give her a second thought. He is actively trying to push her away throughout the entire movie. And even like when when she has the chance to like her, like her her dad comes like, hey, maybe you want to live with me for a while, and she's like in the car driving away. But she feels a, such a connection to uh, her culture that she's like, no, I can't go with you. I got to go back and actively actively try to participate in in our culture and it's um it's really gut-wrenching at times like how hard she is trying and how much he is just dismissing her uh because you you really want the two like you you want him to see the error of his ways and like hey you you don't have to be this like so much traditionalist that you're looking for uh, a different successor in this group of schlubs that you've rounded up and taken to your school. It's, oh, and, you, you, yeah. you want her to uh, like achieve her goal of getting like the recognition that she deserves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and like the other boys in it that are of her age clearly don't give a shit. Like yeah. they don't care about being the the chief. 
you know, but to her, it, it, it means so much. Um, so for it to be withheld from her because of that and because of her grandfather's resentment. Oh, and, and I mean, that big tragedy that occurred is that, um, you know, uh, her mother died giving birth to twins and she was the only one that survived. So yeah. her father fled to um, somewhere else, like America or Europe or something, to be an artist. And she was left there to be raised by her grandparents. Um, so yeah. start with that as like the foundation of what what her, her life experience is. And it's it's so heartbreaking. And you, you mentioned it earlier. That scene was just about broke me. That was one of the saddest moments I've seen in films in recent memory is her, you know, she won like a New Zealand wide speech about family and she's delivering it to everyone. And it's a speech explicitly about her grandfather and why family is so important. And he doesn't even attend. Yeah. He doesn't show up while she's in like the traditional garb and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, heartbreaking. Um, You know, it's a beautiful like slice of life about what it's like to be um, part of this community. Um, is it, is it Maui? I think is what they are, but, um, yeah. And it also New Zealand is absolutely gorgeous. We've seen a lot of New Zealand from watching these, um, Lord of the Rings movies. It's nice to just see what it looks like by the people that live there. Um, yeah, this is just a great, it's a great family film and it's got a really good message. I do think it's kind of rough that basically she has to perform a literal miracle and die, like practically die in the process for her grandfather to be okay with her to right. achieve them. It's like, okay, you saved all the beached whales and you kind of died, but you're not dead yet. So <laughs> I guess <laughs> you've earned it. <laughs> I guess you could be chief now. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, well, I don't know. The boys are like five inches taller than you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and also I was just going to say that there's a lot of comparisons to Bend It Like Beckham. Um, I, I think Bend It Like Beckham <laughs> what a, okay. was a surprise at one, how good it was and how wholesome it was and how it's really a message about having your family appreciate you for who you are. Hmm. And I think that that's kind of what Whale Rider is about, too. It's just it's a just different culture. But like 50% less soccer in Whale Rider. Substantially less soccer, <laughs> but more hitting each other with poles. <laughs> it's true. All right, what do we have next? I have the next on my list. Oh, uh, Whale Rider, Cost 4, Made 41. It was a big movie. Hey, hell yeah. Um, I have a delightful film, Final Destination 2. Ah, this movie. Did you watch oh it? My God. I did. You watched it? Okay. I, 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 I actually... I a video of it real quick just to remind myself of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, this, and yeah. <laughs> this is a thing. I don't know. I, I have some opinions on it. Do you guys want to take the lead and tell me what you thought of this this cinematic experience? I mean, like, like like you were saying earlier, like, not necessarily good, but at least entertaining. Like, this movie, like, gave you stuff to look at. And, like, a lot of, like, <laughs> gruesome deaths with people popping, like, watermelons. And um, the, these uh, these moments of these weird, like, mousetrap contraptions, these Rube Goldberg machines of death. Uh, where you like just an intricate series of events that lead to somebody's gruesome death because like like the, the premise as in Final Destination 1 somehow people have avoided death and then death is coming to get them to complete the job and they're trying to uh, reverse the situation evade death long enough to where like, death just forgets or whatever <laughs> but, like, the, the, the point of the movie isn't having like this this plot about 
redemption and overcoming these obstacles. The point is, who's going to be next up to have this weird, gruesome death? And hey, the movie the did it. The movie gives no you some. <laughs> the, the movie gives you some weird, gruesome. I mean, I saw deaths. just so there doing like the, the the car crash scene in the beginning of the movie. Like, if if a car goes under a thing, and it's just hitting the roof. Like, uh, at one part, the car goes under a truck, and only its roof gets hit by the truck, and it still somehow explodes. Yeah. <laughs> like, the windshield it's, it's is wild. highly... <laughs> so many, so many things explode. They're like, wait, how did that explode? It's like the Family Guy joke, when the wagon goes off the edge of the cliff, and the wagon explodes. And then the like, horse wait, explodes. No, You're like, that, something's <laughs> off here. <laughs> right. But the, oh. the first 10, mo- 10 minutes of this movie are fucking wild. Like, this car crash scene, is it's got to be four minutes long of just these cars, like, rolling and flipping <laughs> over and smashing into things. It is insane. This movie is bonkers. Ryan, tag in. This is what you're describing is kind of why I love this movie. <laughs> it's so it's dumb. Just, it has no restraint. So no restraint <laughs> at all. There's no lot of I'm like, at what point a grill explodes? <laughs> like, the grill explodes. The guy's just like, there at, at, flipping burgers. And then, like, somebody, like, offhandedly mentions a comment, like, oh, yeah, that was a close call. And then the grill explodes <laughs> in the background. Oh, but not before the two people have a rev- revelation that, like, wait a minute. No, someone saved his life. That means he's next to boom. <laughs> and then the arm lands on the dinner plate. Like, yep. you gotta, again, this is, if it wasn't this clear... Is- for the other 84 minutes of the movie, this is a comedy. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is just an absolutely grisly, stupid comedy. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I really, I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to make like make it seem like this is a truly great movie. I think it's just really fun if you're in the mood for this kind of it's thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think um, it's like when we talked about Ghost Ship, that's what really bothered me about Ghost Ship is like, you know, I was cool the first 10 minutes. It's like, whoa, that was some fucked up shit. What else you got? And it had nothing. This movie was, was like, don't worry, we're just getting started. <laughs> yeah, it, it kept on, like, amping up the, the not, not, not the stakes, but um, the, 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 the attitude, the, whatever was going to happen next was going to be bigger than the thing you saw before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that this movie gets to have a little bit more fun. And, like, obviously, this is the era where we're going to get some really grisly horror films coming out. You're going to have, um, you know, just this year, I believe, uh, House House of a Thousand Corpses or whatever is going to come out. The first Saw film comes out. Um, you know, you've got remakes of franchises like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. And, and they're going to be gross and grisly. Um, and I think this is kind of like when the the pantheon of great horror villains you know like jason and um mike myers but there's always like freddy krueger and freddy krueger is the one that gets gets to have fun he's the one that kind of gets to play with his villains a little or play with his kids a little bit before he, before he murders them all gruesomely and i think that that's kind of what final destination 2 does is that it's not just about like let's torture someone and then watch them die miserably it's like let's come up with some funny, clever ways to kind of make this happen. Clever is not the right word to use. This movie's uh, no. that's generous yeah. to call it. This movie clever, <laughs> but to come up with at least some inventive things or just some silly scenarios by which these people are just going to get completely dismantled. Yeah, one of the early deaths is the kid who gets his hand stuck 
in a garbage disposal and then his apartment catches on fire and then like the the fire escape like uh uh collapses while he's on it and he lands around and he's fine so far and then just like the ladder stabs him through the eye yeah like well, and there's like gives the him... there's like the clue on the on the refrigerator too because the magnets in the back spell eye you know, um, you'll see that a lot throughout this film. There's tons and tons of little visual clues that if you're paying attention, like if you're actually really paying attention to the movie, <laughs> the kills are kind of spelled out with visual clues constantly, you know? Um, and like, by the way, you'll also note that at the same time, it's distracting because he's trying to cook microwave, microwavable cheese sticks in a frying pan on his stovetop. Yeah, with, with like vegetable oil. Who does yeah, that? Bizarre. This kid yeah. deserves to die just for that <laughs> He's alone. He's a madman. Like, I know. Absolute chaos agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, I think it's great that um, like they also bring back, they found a way to bring back all of the kills from the first one too and show you new versions of them too. Was that <laughs> like, true? Yeah, there's like tons of like crime scene footage of like just bodies like splayed out from the first movie. You're like, that was not in the original. <laughs> that was nice that they <laughs> re-killed the people from the first movie for us. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, because they, like, the, they brought back the one late, uh, the one girl from the first movie. Because yeah, they need to kill yeah, her off back. in a very weird way. <laughs> yeah, she and gets did you notice, like, blowed up. The 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 pregnant woman who they're trying to like get to 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 rescue because if they can save her and she gives birth and like introducing life will cancel out death. It's very like very like they're gonna help it's, her give birth. They're, they're going to make sure she's oh, okay. safe until, until she yeah. gives birth. Okay. Uh, but even then, but she, they she, determined she that it like, didn't matter. <laughs> right, right. They <laughs> we, undercut we their own drama. Pull the baby out of her or else we're going <laughs> to... <laughs> but the, the police officer that she ends up hanging out with, the pregnant lady, is another, like, a, a guy who was going to play a police officer in the show Heroes, also starring Ali Lauder. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, the, so there's not a lot of A-list talent in this, but A.J. Mm. Cook is in it, and Keegan Tracy, who have both, if you look up their film credits, have been on a lot of shows. A.J. Cook is the main character of Criminal Minds, and she's been in 330 episodes of Criminal Minds. Oh, shit, okay. Like, yeah, she is TV royalty. Um, mm. She doesn't do a lot of she movies. She thinks it all, she's, de- she thinks Destination 2 for all <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael Landis as well as the patrolman. By the way, there are two survivors, which is great because these movies typically do not allow for survivors. Um, so two people well, we keep the franchise going. going. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the franchise also, will keep going. Yeah, the the one recurring character actually is Tony Todd, who, who you may know as like the '90s Candyman guy. Um, he, he usually is just like a menacing black man on film. That's like kind of what he gets typecast as. Um, and he's the one that in this scenario is the guy operating the crematorium that's like roasting their friend and delivering a little bit of exposition that's my one I mean that's so sad this is my one complaint my one complaint about this movie is that there's a bit too much exposition I think that I would be (laughs) so much happier just to see them all in a state of terror than trying to explain to me how the order of who dies matters like yeah because it doesn't just keep doing what you're doing this is great like I don't because I have plot. to. Like, they have to go through like this whole backwards logic of like, okay, in your vision, this is the order people died. So in order for death to like uh, fulfill its its task, 
you have to die in reverse order now. And it's this very tortured premise. Where, and Ali Lauder has this like this Pepe Silvia moment in her padded room with like the newspapers and the pins and the yarn. Yeah, it's um Thank you for the Pepe Silvia reference, by the way. <laughs> Pepe Silvia. Pepe Silvia. I gotta find Pepe Silvia. <laughs> yeah. But I would say my my last point and then I'm done is just that like this is also just a cool mechanic for a narrative that is used for a really schlocky genre horror film. Could you imagine a premise like this in the hands of someone like Christopher Nolan or Fincher? They love this kind of like weird, this kind of plot device is the sort of thing that they would craft a really exciting thriller around. Hmm. You know, it's just that it's left in the hands of, oh, by the way, David R. Ellis, who made Snakes on a Plane. Um, That's the director (laughs) of this film. (laughs) So... Oh god! And and, and the first and the first final destination was about a plane crash. Yeah, yeah. I believe the third one is about a derailed theme park ride, and yep. um, all the other ones have some kind of weird thing that happens. I think they're they've made six or seven like that. total. Yeah, sure. I, I don't even think so, the I'm, final yeah. destination was the final one. I think they came out with another mm. one after that. <laughs> Oh, uh, David R. Ellis also directed... That was in 2009. He directed The Final Destination. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I've never seen Irreversible. I don't know what that... Mo- oh, wait. Numbers. Oh, uh, cost 26 and it made 90. Yep. That's mm. right. So it did, did well. Did well. Like, I mean, the, and again, I'll step up to bat for this franchise. I know it looks bad, and yeah, it probably is bad, but it's fun. You know what? If you can handle watching people get put through, like, deli slicers, this, this movie is fun. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, what's Irreversible. So you guys have not seen this movie? No. no, I don't know what this is. I This is maybe the most hard-to-watch movie I've ever seen. Ooh. Oh, shit. Um, and I rewatched it with the intention to skip two scenes in it. Um, so this this guy, this French director, Gaspar No, um, he made it. Um, and he is a very sadistic kind of filmmaker. He kind of makes you... Makes, kind of wants to hurt you as a viewer like if that makes sense um and you know there's a lot of people that make bad movies that are just like this is terrible or like this is gross i don't want to watch this um but they don't have talent they're not talented and that's the big thing about this guy is that he's really a talented filmmaker and he's far smarter a filmmaker than someone like you bull and as a result, he's made films that are ten times more painful to watch than something like U-Bowl would ever make. Um, so, again, the, the movie, I'm, I'm talking all about it. Like, I'm not really talking about, about what this movie is. This movie is um, essentially about um, a murder of a guy. It's, it's uh, filmed like Memento, where the scenes are in reverse order. So you're watching the very end of the movie first. And then as the shots proceed, you kind of travel back in time to where you see how everything came to be and the opening scene is a guy getting his head like camera up close right on top of his face his head literally getting caved in with a fire extinguisher like being turned to burger um in a multi-minute long sequence no, no cuts um and then you see the scene next the next scene that you see is the events that precede that in which these two guys are chasing him and then it precedes that where you see, and I kid you not, it is a nine minute long, no cut rape scene. Oh, oh fuck. Um, and you find out that this guy has just 
raped this woman and these two men are chasing after the guy that did it. And then you go further back and that's and, and that's that's kind of when the grisly stuff stops is maybe after that 45 minutes. And then after that you kind of just sort of see the drama of how this all came to be between these two men and this woman and how this really depraved sicko um you know assaults her and then gets killed by the two. Um and again, it's all very much, it's so exploitative, and he kind of just sort of makes you live in the grime of the movie. So I did rewatch it, and again, I skipped those two scenes. Like, I mean, I didn't, once it became tedious of watching a guy get his head caved in, I skipped ahead a little bit, and I just did not want to watch that rape scene again. It's, it's, it's miser- a miserable viewing experience, and I don't think you should give him the satisfaction of putting you, the viewer, through it. <laughs> So again, I'm not recommending this movie either in spite of that. It's, it has its qualities. There's a lot of really interesting stuff he does in it too. Um, he, I was listening to it on my headphones and you'll pick it up. He uses this high pitch frequency throughout the entire fucking movie. So the entire time you're there, you're hearing this high pitch squeal in the back just to make, just to kind of hurt you, just to make you uncomfortable with everything that's happening. Um, the, again, this this is an infamous film, a really infamous film. Uh, most people bring it up in like the movies I'll never watch again, um, or worst scenes in film history. It's a brutal and disgusting movie, um, made by someone with genuine talent. I hate to say, um, and uh, he's Gaspar Noé. Uh, he's made some other films too that I th- I think aren't necessarily this ruthless, that are worth checking out he may i think he made one called um into the void um and i liked that film a lot it's it's kind of it's got some some kind of gross stuff in it but it's uh much more watchable so i don't know i don't know gosh i've been ranting here i don't know where i land on this movie anyways like you know wes if some guy's making you watch you bowl films make him watch irreversible oh like, God, no. yeah let him know what's up like this movie is rough. I, I, don't, I don't hate him that much <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, again, it's it's a uh, infamous. It, it it is it is known for being this just nasty movie. Do you want to move on? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Lost in La Mancha. Uh, I did watch this one. Do you watch this one? I did watch it. Yeah. Um, had you seen what it before? Is this? is this a documentary? No. Is this a what is this? So uh, I'll take you back. I watched the trailer, so uh, I have no idea a, what this is. It, it is a documentary. There is a film director, Terry Gilliam. You probably recognize him for directing some like 12 Monkeys. Okay. Uh, also directed a bunch of other movies. Uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Time Bandits. Ah. Um, the, there's he, he does like a lot of like these really uh, uh, Brazil quirky movies. Um, very like uh, uh, artistic. Used a lot of uh, practical effects. Uh, he's a really great director. I really like him. Uh, for like throughout pretty much all of the 90s, he was trying to get a movie made, an adaptation, uh, a retelling of Don Quixote. And in like 99 or 2000, he was finally able to like start production. Um, But it quickly fell apart. And while they were like in 
the, the process of producing the movie, there was a, uh, someone there with a camera who was sort of documenting it. And they were able to take the, the footage from, you know, things that they were doing while they were like in production and um, footage from the, the guy holding the camera and put this documentary together about how this thing fell apart. Uh, and it's it's a really interesting watch. And like in Don Quixote as a film project is kind of infamous because a couple of other people have tried to make movies about Don Quixote and they always seem to fall apart. So it's kind of viewed as like this this cursed narrative for films, most notably the other guy who tried to make a Don Quixote movie but could never make it happen was Orson Welles, uh, director of what's widely regarded as the best movie ever made, uh, Citizen Kane. So that guy couldn't get it done. Terry Gilliam could have done. Flash forward to the to the future real quick. Terry Gilliam did eventually get a Don Quixote movie made, but it's very different from what it was that he envisioned when he was trying to get this version made. So I, I Lost in La Mancha is an interesting little documentary because there's not like a, a grand like arcing narrative that is being told here. They're not like trying to like shed light on any particular issue. Like you would see like, so like when uh, Michael Moore does a documentary, it's just kind of like a, a fly on the wall, getting people's opinions as this thing is unfolding. There's not really an antagonist. There's not something that like the documentarians are trying to accomplish or show in particular. It's just like, Hey, here's some stuff that happened and here's how it all fell apart. And uh, you see a lot of Terry Gilliam, the director, in the documentary. And it's interesting because he's like a, a kid on a playground. Like he is, like you can see his joy of making movies throughout the entire thing and how heartbroken he is when it all falls apart. And then there are these other like characters that surround him, like his assistant director and producers and stuff. And the entire time, like, I think they're, they're trying to be a bit more reserved in front of the camera, but you can tell it's written all over their faces and the things they say where from the beginning of this production, they're like, we're kind of fucked here. I don't think this is going to happen. And it's interesting to watch like the arc of the movie uh, to where like they all start, they all realize it more and more. And then he starts to realize it. And then one day it's like they're, they're hit with like the final thing like hey your lead actor has two herniated discs he is not coming back this production is over and it's kind of a sad ending because you really want he he wanted to get this movie made but you kind of already knew the ending from the beginning because you know what movie didn't come out in 2002 don quixote directed by terry gilliam yeah yeah um uh, yeah, I, I think that's a very good synopsis of what this is about. I think that if it did have a point, I think it's supposed to show the viewer how fragile the process of filmmaking can really be. Hmm. Um, that, you know, we really take for granted this finished product that we get, and we don't see how just the slightest things can, can set a movie off course. Yeah. Um, you know, there there is this again. We, they use the term quixotic. It means an irrational fixation on something. So Terry Gilliam being obsessed with making a movie that is about a guy who's trying to do the impossible to begin with. Um, you know, I, I think is is really fascinating. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, po- a poetic. Okay. Yeah, there's a poetic irony to. Yeah. The the fact that he can't get this movie made. Yeah, but you know, he, he has funders back out. Um, storms wipe away their whole sets. You yeah, know, like and that was saying. like the sort of like 
tipping point. Like, oh shit, this entire day of shooting is lost, and all of this equipment just got rained all over. Yeah, um, you know, they, they're like you're saying, their lead actor had the herniated discs, and it's like I looked it up because you know when you see them deliver that speech at the end where he's sort of explaining why they're going to have to shut down production, that you'd think that they were just saying this guy was about to die, and yeah. like he just died like two years ago. <laughs> like he's fine. Yeah, but, he did eventually make a recovery, but, but it takes a long wait, time. Yeah, they couldn't wait a month. They couldn't wait a nope. month for him to recover because they needed to film the movie right then and there, and he was like the main actor. Him and Johnny Depp were supposed to be the main actors in it. Yep. Um, and you, you did say, like, yeah, I, I'm actually kind of interested to watch it now because it sort of came and went, but he did actually finally make a Don Quixote film in 2018 with Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. So Yes. And then a follow-up documentary afterwards about he fi- how he finally made it and it oh, is, is a bit, true yeah yeah there, there's a sort of a second documentary to this hmm. now that the film is was done and released um and yeah you know terry gilliam is a fascinating director i you know you named so many of his great movies i haven't seen a bad movie from the guy i really love him as a director and he kind of has a not necessarily not in the way that people act in wes anderson movies but the same way that wes anderson has these kind of kitschy sets and unconventional kind of paper mache looking things is Terry Gilliam style through and through. He has this sort of uh, fantasy realism in his films that are absolutely great. Oh, and it's narrated by Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges it was like the co-lead in The Fisher King, which probably yeah. is my favorite Terry Gilliam movie. I love Fisher King. Um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of cool stuff with this. Even if on its own, on its face, it's not that interesting. Honestly, as far as documentaries go, this wasn't the most compelling or interesting thing. Aside from, you know, like I said, it was. It's very cool to see a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Should we plow forward? Okay, I got three more movies, and only two I'm going to really talk about. So if you want to plow forward, the next one I have is The Recruit. Yeah, I haven't really seen the last three here. I don't think I've ever seen The Recruit. Um, well, this actually was my... Well, mm, it is the second worst movie. Darkness Falls is the worst, followed by The Recruit. Okay. And then Kangaroo Jack. So, <laughs> so that's where this is. This is a really bad movie. Um, I really didn't like this at all. Um, and it shouldn't be that bad. Uh, it's made by this guy, uh, Roger Donaldson, who had made the film Species, which is fun camp. Dante's Peak, I don't know how that holds up, but it was fine, uh, as I remember watching it back in the day. Um, and he made 13 Days, which I think is about, like, the 50s and, like, a almost going to an atomic war or something. I don't I don't really remember, but... At any rate. Um, yeah, so what is this? This is a... It's a, it's a two leads. You've got Al Pacino and Colin Farrell... And they're trying to, you know, as the title says, recruit Colin Farrell into um, the CIA, where he's going to be like some special kind of operative or something. And it's all like just so unwatchable and stupid. Um, And I think it's a very lazy depiction of what spycraft is. Um, none of the set pieces really work. None of these people are particularly cool. None of them look like they're remotely competent at being spies. Um, I just didn't care at all about any of it. There's an extreme abuse of Dutch angles, which make this movie look really cheaply made. Um, even though, you know, it costs $50 million. Like, they spent a lot on this movie. 
Um, Colin Farrell's accent's really bad. He's trying to do, I think he's trying to do an American accent, but his voice sounds really weird. Um, Al Pacino. You know what? Gold star Al Pacino. Like, the dude just can bring it. Like, he could just r- read the phone book, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> like, he's great in this, but even his character kind of sucks, and you can kind of tell he knows it, too, as the movie's going along. He just doesn't care. Um, but it's Al Pacino. Like, he's, he's, he's fine. Um, I'm just railing off my complaints about this movie at this point, but, like, Kurt Wimmer... Um, is one of like three people involved in writing a script. This movie is so fucking ham-handed. Like the dialogue is awful. Kurt Wimmer is the guy that made Equilibrium, and I think I kind of trashed the writing of that. So seeing his no, name, that movie attached... just came out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a writer. He can write. Well, okay. He clearly, does not put a lot of effort into his craft. So I'm guessing he <laughs> writes probably five movies a month. <laughs> I don't know if he proofreads. My God. No, but like I, that was my whole complaint about Equilibrium is that it was such like a middle school attempt at you know like a dystopian world and you're trying to take all the cool things you can think of and put them into one yeah and and in a lot of ways this one feels like the same thing with spies i think that he thinks these spies are way cooler than they really are and he's a co-writer so you know he may have been brought in just to kind of clean up a script or something but god this movie is just unwatchable it's so bad and it also mirrors the plot of a tony scott film spy game that came out in 2001 um, hmm. I shouldn't say mirrors the plot, but it's a very similar premise. It's like old school Intel op is bringing up younger Intel op. Um, and it's a, it's a, not even a good movie, but it's a better movie at least than this. So ugh, this movie just rubbed me the wrong way. I did not like it. So if you're going to watch a spy movie, go with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind instead. Oh, absolutely. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is delightful. Yeah, you for, should for sure watch that movie. Um, and I'll just uh, okay, yeah. For, it cost cost forty six, and it made a hundred and one. So it t- again tied Oof. with Just Married in the box office for your January films. Um, and then the last movie, I'll just talk about it. I don't know if you guys watched it, The Sun. No. Um, it's made by a Belgian duo called the Dardine Brothers. Um, they pretty much exclusively make films in Europe. Um, and this movie got me by surprise. I absolutely loved it. I won't go on about it very long, but it's a very small scale drama about a woodshop teacher who teaches like reformed teens like they had just been in prison and they're out of prison and the kid that he has to train um it was in prison for killing his own son um and the kid doesn't realize that the son that he murdered was this woodshop teacher so this entire movie you're wondering what is about to happen? Like at any moment, you feel like this guy could just snap and just murder this kid right there. You don't really know why he's allowing this kid to be around him. Why he would just say, "I don't want to work with him." Obviously, he killed a family member of mine. Um, and what it becomes is just this really powerful drama um, about, I guess, uh, forgiveness and closure. Um, it's all shot handheld. Like the entire time, the movie is basically shot over sh- someone's shoulder. Like, there is no... You are literally in the movie with them as they do it. There, this is... There is no... I cannot think of a film that feels more immediate than this. There's no soundtrack. Um, you're just sort of watching the events unfold of this guy grappling with his son's death, trying to figure out if this kid is even redeemable and what to do, you know. Um, really good movie. I don't think it's for everyone, but um, I think it's a... It's a a great film. Well, 
certainly I'll I'll bring this one up again at the end of the year as well alongside you know fucking City of God. Um, I think these are these are these are really really good movie and worth seeing. Cool. Cool. And then, oh, and uh, lastly, Super Sucker. I didn't I didn't do I didn't see anything. Jeff Daniels directed it. Actor Jeff Daniels okay. this is like his only film he's ever directed. It came out. Um, I didn't look into it. It was supposed to be like a kind of comedy or something. But All right. Saying that that's there. That movie exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, movie of the month, City of City God. God. Yeah. What a film. Goddamn. Yeah, I think it was great. Uh, anything else we need to address before we close the book on January of 2003? No. No, no, that is it. Everyone get out there and get some Extreme Beach Volleyball. Yep. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is it. That is the end. Next up, we'll do an official show. I got a, a few new release games that are coming out that I'm going to be picking up, so we'll talk about those. And, you know, maybe, maybe play some uh, gospel or gossip. Day- been a while since Dave we did that. Recording. The Prince of Persia game just came out today. Prince of Persia just did come out today. Uh, the local GameStop down the street, not the, the the game shop. It's not a GameStop, but the local game shop down the street. Uh, I have it uh, reserved there, but it has not come in yet. They think it might come in tomorrow, so we'll see. But yeah. Um, and then we'll start up again uh, next month with a Pokemon okay. show. That's it. End of podcast. So long. Later, get it.